You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 192, Intune Magazine. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flat. Today is October 23rd, 2020, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about Intune Magazine. Actually, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff. So uh, uh, this is a, a special episode. The format will be slightly different than what you're used to because I had a guest come on who's going to talk a little bit about bicycles that we talked about from uh, on the last episode, and is going to join me for my episode as I talk about Intune Magazine. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Let me pull my show notes up. I'm going to turn my Commodore uh, monitor here so that my guests can also see my notes. And while I pull these up, we have a few minutes to get ready during this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Uh, The first thing I wanted to mention is, as always, there is a new uh, Sprite Castle Plays video, which is up on YouTube. You can find it at youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming. Just look for the Sprite Castle Plays playlist, or you can just search Google for, uh, not Google, uh, search YouTube for, you can do a shortcut. You don't got to go to Google and go right to YouTube and search for Sprite Castle Plays. And uh, this week I played Gremlins, you know, Gremlins is a game that I covered uh, a couple of years ago on Sprite Castle. And as you probably know, next week is Halloween. And I thought, well, Gremlins would be a a fun game to play on the old Commodore 64. So if you want to see what Gremlins looked like on the Commodore, then just head over to YouTube and watch that video. Uh, I'm not, I, you know, one of the downsides of doing a podcast like this is that I can only do a topic once and next week is Halloween. Halloween is my favorite holiday and I already covered Halloween. I covered Halloween several years ago on episode 144 of you don't know flack. So when you're done listening to this one, If it hasn't quite um, scratched that Halloween itch, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to episode 144. Go pull that. They should all still be accessible on iTunes, but if you can't find it or can't download it, you can always listen to it on podcast.robohair.com. All the episodes are still available there. But all my Halloween stories about trick-or-treating and costumes I wore and all the great fun times I had uh, during Halloween growing up are all on that episode. So again, that's episode 144. If you're in a Halloween mood next week and uh, and want to go listen to some old Halloween stories, I recommend uh, going and listening to that one. You know, one of my favorite Halloween memories was getting together with all the kids from my neighborhood and we would all go trick-or-treating and I would go 
outside and there would be the whole group of uh, kids. There would be Jason Bundy and Paul Davies. We always called him Hermsky. Uh, Stephen Burt was there. Mike McLaughlin. Gary Heather would show up in his costume. Darren Folds. Tron Ryder Bow and his son Christopher were always there. Uh, Armadan Restel, Olav Hope. David Hearns, John Schaller, Eric Stryanisi. Oh, you should have seen the things he wore. Uh, Matt Nicholson, Dave Zilly, Steve Rasmussen, Patrick Markey, Chris Folds, Garrett Allier. Oh, yeah. I remember the year, Graham, that, yeah, I, I can't even tell you what Graham Volke wore, but, uh, yeah, it was something. Uh, Rick Reynolds would always be there, Scott Lambert. John Morrison, Jake Nonamaker, and the mysterious Cobra Kai, who surprisingly would show up dressed as Cobra Kai. <laughs> it was a great costume. We know it was him. Uh, unfortunately, I did not get to go trick-or-treating with all those people, but those are my Patreon supporters. And so if you'd like to be a Patreon supporter and support this podcast, go over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You'll get uh, lots of uh, blog posts, almost a, a blog post almost every day. You'll get inside information about the podcast. If you are one of the 16-bit supporters, you will get a special video once a week. So all kinds of fun stuff over there on Patreon. But if you love the show and you want to support it, but... Patreon is not your thing. I get it. There's no hard feelings. There are a couple of free things you can always do to support this show. One is to share links to this uh, podcast on social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, you know, um, podcasts like mine, you know, spread through word of mouth. And so maybe there's a uh, someone that you think might like the show in general, or maybe just a specific episode, whatever. Uh, I would love it if you uh, uh, sent that out and, and tagged me on Twitter or, you know, put hashtag Sprite Castle, anything like that. I'd appreciate that. And you can always uh, leave a review on iTunes. I'm terrible about this. I mentioned, I think, last week that I don't really use iTunes. And if you don't, then uh, there's no uh, hard feelings if you don't leave a review. But if you do go on iTunes and it's uh, something easy for you to do, then just click on there. And uh, I'm not saying give me a five-star review. Just give me any review, anything that you think about the show. I would love uh, uh, your feedback there. So uh, last week's episode... 191, I guess that was two weeks ago, was all about bicycles. And I told all these old stories about uh, all the bicycles I owned growing up as a kid, riding bicycles and, and uh, you know, different ones. And there were a few things uh, that I forgot to mention, you know, and that came up later. And I was discussing the podcast episode with my wife and she just came alive. She started telling me all these stories uh, that she had about growing up with a bicycle, about things they had jumped and and uh, accidents that she had and all this stuff. And uh, uh, throughout the week, she just kept telling me stories. And so I said, you know what? Why don't I have you on the show? And you can tell your stories and we'll capture those stories as well. So uh, what we will have, what will be coming up is uh, my wife will be joining me here very shortly and she and I will be talking, she'll be talking mostly about her bicycle stories growing up. Uh, and once that's done, we will segue into this week's episode's topic, which is Intune Magazine. Uh, Intune Magazine was a music magazine that I started and ran. It was a print magazine when I lived in Spokane, Washington. And uh, my wife helped me the whole uh, whole way. And you'll get to hear about the parts that uh, she did and her memories. And, and uh, we'll tell all kinds of stories about the uh, beginning and 
and the running and uh, eventually the end of Intune magazine. So, uh, again, we'll start with uh, her stories about bicycles and then we'll transition into uh, Intune magazine. So I hope you enjoy this special episode of uh, You Don't Know Flag. I almost forgot the name of my own show. <laughs> so let me bring in my wife and uh, we will get started. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flag. Now, on the last episode of You Don't Know Flag, I talked all about bicycles. If you remember, I talked about the bicycles I owned as a kid. I talked about uh, some of the crazy antics uh, that I did, jumping bicycles and uh, all the crazy things that I did, all the freedom that bicycles uh, allowed me. And something interesting happened after the show is I was discussing uh, the topic and the show with my wife, and she began telling me all of her bicycle stories. Of course, it uh, she's told me some of these stories in the past, but it was just, uh, you know, I didn't even think to ask her about uh, her bicycle stories. And so for the first time ever on You Don't Know Flack, I have a very special guest, my wife, Miss Susan O'Hare. Hello, Susan. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. We are uh, sitting in the Flack Studios. It's uh, just to uh, paint the picture here. It's a uh, uh, the lights are dim. Uh, we're, we're sitting on fancy uh, black velvet couches with red curtains around. Uh, actually, we're sitting in my home office. We're surrounded by uh, what are some of the things that you see around us? A ramen noodle bowl from yesterday. <laughs> I really meant cooler things. What are the cooler oh, things that you well, there's see? There's a tiny skeleton bobblehead with a, uh, a holding a a little pitchfork thing, which yep. the middle part of the pitchfork has broken off, which is kind of cool. Lunch boxes. Yeah. Well, what, tell us about the lunch boxes that you see there. Okay. Well, I see one for Defender, one for Gauntlet, one of my favorite games, right? And Joust. And um, there's a Control-Alt-Delete button sign and just an R2-D2. So much. So I see a little bitty Mario thing made out of perler beads. A lot pack, of cool things. Pack of Oreos. What you say? How cool I <laughs> Oreos are mine. So that's, in reality, what the uh, studio looks like. Now, uh, before I ask you about your bicycle stories, uh, one of the things that I forgot to mention, I, you know, uh I was looking at pictures of bicycles, and I had a lot of people share the uh, their bicycle stories and the types of bicycles that they owned. And as I was looking at these photos on a lot of the BMX bikes, I saw the pads, and I totally forgot about that. Um, I don't. I don't. Uh, I think my first bike, I don't think had pads, and then um, then I had a bike. That did have pads, and as I mentioned in the episode, uh, I didn't keep my bike in the garage. I just uh, threw it in the front yard, and over time, it got rained on so many times that the buttons on the pads got rusted. <laughs> and so you couldn't. There was no removing the pads at that point. It was just uh, uh, on there permanently. Of course, uh, the boys' bikes had the uh, extra bar, uh, you know, in, in the front and there was the pad there. And then some, I remember, um, my buddy Andy, his bike had, uh, the pad like on the, um, I guess the gooseneck, the part like right under the handlebars. So I'm on it. 
don't know how you would actually hurt yourself on that. But um, so before I ask you about uh, your bicycle stories, did any of your bicycles have uh, pads? Yeah, sadly, only one of my bikes had pads. I have many bikes, many stories to tell. And the one that that didn't need the pads was my Huffy bike that I got like on maybe when I was seven for Christmas. And that was before I started doing all of the crazy stuff. Uh, I think it had pads across the bar that went between the two handlebars and it may have had a pad on a bike, one of the, the bars that goes in between your legs, but not like the boy bar, you know? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And of course, I never had a major crash on the Huffy bike, but the other bikes, oh my God, if I had <laughs> had pads, it might I might be a different person today. So you were telling me uh, in the car, uh, I, I was telling you about some of the, the ramps that we built and how it was funny that... Um, uh, you know, like today, like I don't have a stash of bricks, but somehow, I don't know how it was in your neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, we never seem to have a problem finding things to build ramps out of. Yeah. So at the edge of my neighborhood was a dump and we would go down to the dump and just drag random pallets of crap and old big wheels and just anything we could find. And we would use them to either create other vehicles for one thing, or we would turn them into giant ramps. And the the story that first came up was that really made you laugh was, Oh yeah. That time that I jumped a mailbox with a ramp that we had built on my 10 speed. And we literally, we built a ramp so tall that I jumped over the neighbor's mailbox, but had not planned the landing well. And the bike made me a woman that day. That's all I can say. Is <laughs> it went far. Uh, whew. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's a lot to unpack in this story. First of all, when you say jump the mailbox, you don't mean like the mailbox was laying on the ground. No, the mailbox was standing up. We built a ramp that was almost as tall as me. That I rode up on my 10 speed, jumped over the mailbox and then landed on the sidewalk with the bike in between my legs. But I wasn't the first one to do it. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood full of boys and I was the only girl in part of this crazy gang of foolishness, you know, that we did stuff like this back then. And we built ramps anywhere from the height of like a two by four on its side all the way up to the mailbox ramp, which was the biggest <laughs> ramp that we ever did. And I could, this totally segues me right into a whole nother story of riding down the dam, which I'll save that for. But we did lots of crazy jumps on our bikes, 10 speeds that should not have ever withheld what I had to give it. So when you talk about riding down the dam, is this um, down at uh, your, your grandpa's place? Mm-hmm, yeah. So tell me, so your grandpa lived like hours away from civilization. Is that right? My grandpa's farm was like an hour and a half away from where we lived. And we had a whole separate set of bikes that were kept at the farm. They were kept outside, just thrown by the side of the shed or sometimes just laying around the field. He had 160 acres and we would sometimes just be done with it and walk away. But anyway, these bikes were uh, either ones we had gotten from the dump we had found on the side of the road or old bikes that had then been replaced that we used to have. Right. So the dam was, uh, right in the middle of the pond of the farm. And hold it. So were these dirt bikes or these 10 speeds or these? No, these are the bikes we had as kids. Like the one that was my sister's was, you know, that it was green for one thing. And it had a big, long white banana seat, but the padding had long fallen off. And so it was just a hard metal banana seat with big long gooseneck handlebars that had rusted. I think just saying it was green really. Right. It was, it was like something from E.T. And um, so anyway, all the tires, 
were solid. I don't know if they started out solid, but they were solid by the time we got them to the farm because they set out in the 110 degree sun all the time too. So you never had to worry about a flat tire because they were just solid. (laughs) So anyway, the dam, my grandpa built this pond in the middle of the farm and it went up to about 40 feet tall and got pretty steep, you know, where the pond was needing to be held up the most. So we would spend hours sliding uh, cardboard boxes down the, you know, the dam, getting on regular sleds. Uh, we ride our three-wheelers down the dam, and we would do, like, little risks where you started off at the, the you know, the shorter spot, and you'd build your way up, and whoever could go the furthest, like, towards the 40-foot point was, like, the champion for the day. I had two cousins that hung out down there, too, two boys that also lived five doors down from me, so they were part of the other shenanigans, too, right? <laughs> oh, my God. So... One day we've been doing this and I got to the 40 point part and I was on my sister's banana seat gooseneck handlebar bike at the very top. And the way it works is, is you pedal to the very top of the dam, you stand on the pedals, you put all of your body weight on the handlebars, lean forward and just close your freaking eyes, right? (laughs) You don't pedal. There's no need to pedal. (laughs) You just close your eyes. Well, on that particular day, the gooseneck handlebars, right whenever I was sort of at the peak of all of my body weight being on it, they collapsed and went underneath the bike. And I just rolled and rolled and rolled all the way down to my grandma's garden. Another instance of when the bike went where it shouldn't have gone. <laughs> uh, the boys thought it was funny. And over the years, I got him back. Like we did all kinds of stupid crap on the bikes. Um, we tied a rope to the back of the three wheeler. And the boys would tie the rope to the front of one of the bikes, and I would drag them all over the countryside, up and down the oil-filled road, stuff like that. One day I was doing it. We were having a great time. I look back, and I've been dragging my cousin for some time on his side down the gravel road. So So he's still hanging on to the bike? still hanging on to the bike. (laughs) So I actually have pictures from that day. That was super fun of me dragging him back up the hill after he'd been down the oil-filled road and half of his face was scraped off. (laughs) (laughs) So I talked a little bit on the episode about how uh, I rode my bike from Sun Valley to uh, IMS. Uh, we we rode our bikes to school one time. Of course, you live closer to IMS than I did. But did you ever ride your bike to school? I did. And I rode it to Skyview, which was just outside in my neighborhood a lot. And there were times I would ride it down a busier road. Like when I was in a hurry, it was just like maybe, I don't know, three quarters of a mile. And on days when I had more time, I would ride it through the neighborhood, like up and down the streets and stuff like that. This is my 10 speed, by the way. Um which did start out with a curse. I received that 10 speed for for Christmas one year on a really icy Christmas. And I was determined to ride it, went outside on the bike and slid down the driveway right in front of a moving car. <laughs> That's how it all started. So anyway, um, riding my bike home in the fifth grade one day, I was going through the neighborhood and I was hauling butt. And I saw a kid down the street, little tiny toddler kid, playing ball. And he did it. He ran it. He didn't actually run in front of me. He somehow ran between when my front tire was there and my back tire. He, he landed underneath like the spokes and I ran over him and got his shirt all tangled up and stuff like that. And, um, Oh, his mom was so mad. She came out and was yelling at me and all that stuff. I didn't even know what to say. He bent my spoke, but, And I ended up having to walk the bike. It was probably like a mile and a half from the route I had taken, but I felt so bad. I still feel bad about it. And it's been, you know, a while, (laughs) 25 years. 
So when um, I, I assume that uh, you know, like like I did, uh, that the bicycle for years was kind of my freedom. You know, yeah. it was like our transportation before we had cars. Like, yeah. did you? Uh, I mean ride it I, I assume you guys rode it to you know your friends houses or to go spend the night or yeah oh yeah we rode uh, so i had lots of friends in the neighborhood a huge neighborhood big neighborhood we'd ride to 7-eleven um and we would always hook the bag on the front of the handlebars with all the cans of pop and stuff that we were getting for the day <laughs> right we had to ride through a little field and then park them you just parked your bikes there was no walking your bike or anything like that there was always like 10 bikes you know just thrown out there on did the you side. ever own a bicycle lock or bicycle oh, chain no, no no me either no in fact i rode it to school and i'm sure i never locked my bike at school no you yeah. know and by the way, after your spokes have been bent and the bike's been up in you a couple of times and the pads have ripped off and half your kneecaps hanging off of it, people don't want your bike anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, it's like a biohazard. Right. <laughs> a bicohazard. Uh, so <laughs> when do you remember like what happened to your bike or did you get rid of it or Wow, that's a good question. The Huffy bike was on the farm, and it's probably on the farm today, probably buried with a cow that died out there someday. <laughs> the Definitely the green bike that was my sister's and all of the farm bikes. When my mom sold the farm, they were on the side of the shed, and they were probably just locked up. Like, there's no WD-40 that could fix that. The 10-speed, I really don't know. Um it probably disintegrated after that mailbox jump. I don't know. I, I never sold it or anything. Yeah, that's kind of how I was. Like my ten speed, I don't remember. I don't remember getting rid of it, but it just went away at some point. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there was a story, another story that uh, we talked about in the car, and uh, this was when uh, my wife, as an adult, <laughs> got a bicycle. And, uh, I don't know. Did you ride it much? I don't remember. I had been, I was losing weight and and I bought a special seat with like that gel padding so that things don't hurt, you know, Mm -hmm. not with all my old bicycle injuries. Right. Um, and yeah, I had been riding it for a while and then the kids got a little bit bigger and I got too busy to mess around with the bike. So it sat in the garage for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, it was still a good bike. It's a great bike. And then, uh, our son, uh, went to go spend the night at someone's house And I wasn't a part of this plan, but apparently asked if he could borrow your bike. Yeah. And what's weird is that the kids had been given many bikes over the course of time. And I think he actually owned at least a unicycle and then maybe a regular 10 speed. My bike was a mountain bike. Um, So he borrowed the bike and then, and I remember he was, he was too young to drive. So I had to drive him over to the friend's house with the bike. And the next day the friend came over, if I'm remembering this right, and they were like working in the workshop out there and they were, and I was cool with it. Cause that's what I did as a kid. We took stuff apart. We put it together. We built other vehicles. We did all kinds of stuff with the tires, you know? And I was like, that's awesome. We went out into the garage and the boys told us they had built a Franken bike and they had taken parts off of that really heavy bike that your dad saved for you, I think. Right. Yeah. I haven't, I didn't finish that story, but I, I, I want to continue that. I, I need to tell the end of that story, but go ahead. Um, they had combined parts from at least a couple of, of bikes, but really I think what ended up happening was my bike, which was relatively new mountain bike ended up just basically disassembled and unusable. And, and all of the parts never did get put back on the bike. No, the bike never worked again. No. 
Yeah. No. So do you have any other bicycle stories oh before we... I could tell. So, I, I mean, I just think about all the things and I had, I grew up in the neighborhood from the eighties. Like we played golf in the whole neighborhood's yards. We dug little holes in people's yards. You know, we would make whoop-de-doos in people's yards with the, the trimmings from the golf holes. Right. So we would drive through everybody's yard in the neighborhood with our bikes and no one cared that we were doing that. We would ride out in the field back behind our house and go ride up to these old oil containers that were left over from the railroad and go climb around in them. We'd ride to the lake. We'd ride to Route 66, <laughs> ride up and down Route 66 to go get pizza at Pizza Hut. I mean, we just did everything on our bikes. I could tell so many stories of things we shouldn't have been doing on those bikes, you know, but they did, they represented fun and independence and just like the possibility, there were no rules growing up as long as you were home by the time the porch light went off. So, I mean, those, all those bikes, everything to do with the bikes just represents fun. And, um, you know, it's a wonder I never broke a bone on a bike. I mean, you know, there was, I told you about the day that Brian Hurd rode his bike off the roof of the house over and over and over again. Yeah, that's crazy. And they didn't have cheap bikes. They weren't huffies in their household. You know, they were like fancy pants bikes and stuff like that. I'm sure his dad probably had so many conversations with them about, you know, why is this bike frame bent again? You know, <laughs> you know, I just had this memory. I, I did not talk about this on the other episode, but, um, you know, there was a, uh, there was a line in the sand between the kids that had fancier bikes because they had handbrakes. You know, and then I had always the, the one up until the last bike where, you know, you, when you pedaled, then when you pedaled backwards, it, it, you know, would do the brake. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was the cool thing that you could do if you had the handbrake, which was you would go real slow and then, you know, all of a sudden throw on the front handbrake and do kind of like a, a, you know, a wheelie, but mm-hmm. on the front wheel. But if you had the bike like mine, you could do it one of two ways. You would go slow and then either, the, the proper way to do it was to kind of bend your toes back and stick like the ball of your foot in the front wheel, like between the, <laughs> the wheel and the fork, you know? Yeah. But the, the, the wrong way to do it, which is the way I did it for a long time, was you just shove your toe in there. You know, I mean, you're just the, the toe of your shoe, um, which would then eventually like mess your shoe all up. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, and of course, everybody learned the hard way not to do it when you're going too fast. Uh, or like me, I rode my bike barefooted all the time. And I can't tell you how many times I tore my big toenail off from doing <laughs> stupid stuff like that. And how many times I got pant legs caught in the bike. And, you know, my uncle had a bicycle built for two and it was just notorious for chewing up pant legs. I mean, just, oh yeah. Yeah. I, can, yeah, I, I don't know why that. it was just an open sprocket kind of thing or whatever. So yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Dragging your feet, just like riding a motorcycle. Don't do it barefooted people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I think that kind of uh, covers the uh, bicycle stuff. I'm glad that uh, that you told your stories. Um, but the topic for this episode is Intune Magazine. Mm-hmm. So uh, I kind of have to spend a few minutes and talk about the uh, what led to starting uh, Intune Magazine. And this was a uh, music magazine that uh, I started, the two of us started, I suppose, uh, when I lived in Spokane, Washington. So uh, really the the seed, or not really the seed, I, I didn't have any idea about wanting to, to create a magazine at first, right? Uh, I started working for the FAA in 1995, 
And, uh, you know, I always had a love of music. I've, I've done an episode about um, all the music I, I loved and, and listened to as a kid. And uh, so I started with the FAA, and this would have been in the, the spring of 1995. And I started working on a help desk. But one of the side projects from that help desk was to travel around to other offices and uh, do projects. And one project was to upgrade all that we had this uh, term called the minimum baseline standard, uh, which was every machine. This is going to date this story. Every machine had to be a 386 with uh, eight megs of RAM and at least a 540 meg hard drive. So we we would uh, do an inventory of an office, and they would say, "Okay, we have you know X amount of machines, and five need new processors, and ten need hard drives." And so they would. They would build up this package of all the hardware we needed, and, and they would send it out to these uh, different offices. And I learned very quickly that I was on the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, the guys that had seniority over me got to go do the office in Hawaii, and they got to do the office in San Juan. And in the middle of the summer, I got to do Atlanta, and then I got to do Phoenix. And then when it got cold... I did uh, two offices in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and then I got sent to Spokane, Washington, which is uh, on the east side of Washington, but it's on the uh, the east side of the mountain, so you don't get the rain climate like you get in Seattle. You get the basically the Canadian climate. There was a thing there that they called six month snow. It would it would start snowing in October, and there would still be snow. In the spring, I mean, in April, the same snow would be there. So uh, I got sent to Spokane in December of 1995 on one of these trips. And uh, they usually put us in groups of two. Uh, and and the lady I was traveling with was an older lady who basically wanted to get to the hotel and hang out there. She didn't want to go out to dinner. She didn't want uh, to go out and do any entertainment. She just wanted to, you know, do do the job. And we got a rental car, and of course, we got a little bit of spending money. Uh, and I wanted to go see the town. I wanted to go drive around, you know, take the rental car and go see the uh, the sights, or you know, and go eat dinner and, and whatever uh, was in this town. So, uh, so I was in Spokane in the uh, the winter in '95. Snow on the ground, snow and ice, and I, I took the rental car and I went driving, and uh, I, I knew there would. I had a, a natural gift for finding the nearest Taco Bell. <laughs> of course, this is before uh, a GPS or anything. You know, uh, I would just head out and, and look for a Taco Bell, and, and so while I was out uh, looking for a Taco Bell, I saw this little club. Uh, I mean, just a, a rat hole in the wall place, and there was a sign outside. That said four bands, three dollars. And uh, so I went to uh, Taco Bell and got some dinner. And then I came out, and I was sitting in the car eating right across from this club. And I could just see that sign. And I thought, you know what? I have nothing else to do. And this was a decision that really changed, uh, you know, a big chunk of my life. I decided to go over to the club and, and see what was going on. So I paid my three dollars. And uh, I'm sure everybody at this club thought I was a narc. You know, um, you know, everybody in this club has long hair or mohawks and leather jackets and all this. And I'm sure I was wearing my work clothes. So I'm wearing, you know, 
pair of khakis and a, and a polo and, and whatever. I probably have Taco Bell on my shirt. And, uh, uh, so I go in and, and they say the next band that's playing is this band called Oil Filter. And I talked a little bit about Oil Filter on the music episode, but this was the first time that I heard, uh, Oil Filter. And they play this super heavy and super low, style of music that's very slow, mostly slow and very heavy. I had not heard anything like this before. It blew me away. And uh I've said this before. I they they've ultimately released two cassette tapes and one CD and none of them capture the band's live sound. Uh none of them just just do it justice. It was such a loud and heavy sound you know with with huge subwoofers and and uh, the guitars were tuned so low that they used subwoofers and um you know it was just a really heavy sound that that just it sounds muddy you know on a recording but uh but i saw oil filter that night blew me away and after the show i went up to the the lead singer who was also the lead guitar player and uh, asked him if he had any uh, merchandise for sale. And he said that they had just released their first uh, cassette. So I bought a copy of the cassette and uh, was addicted to it. And so, I mean, I was only in Spokane for a week. And then I and then it was over. You know, this, this story could have been over right there. And I flew home. So uh, my wife is still sitting here. So I want to ask you if you have any memories of... That first, uh, you know, me coming home and having that cassette tape around. Yeah, I remember you were super excited. And we didn't know we were moving there at the time either. You were just like, I want to be a part of this. These people are so cool. I can't believe they talked to me. You had the little cassette, and it, we were just talking about this. It has the picture um, from Guinness Book of World Records, this, this large man on a motorcycle. I've seen the picture a million times. But, uh, yeah, you were super excited, like kind of lit up from it, you know. Um, I wonder if you played that cassette tape in the car with the lady who just wanted to stay in the hotel all the time. Did you subject her to that? No, I'm sure I, <laughs> I did not uh, subject her to that. But yeah, it was uh, that tape became known as the uh, one fat guy tape because it yeah. was uh, uh, the world's record. I think it was the world's largest man, and he was riding a small mini bike. Um, no, the first one just has the the. Um, I don't know his name, but it was the world's largest guy, the guy that always wore overalls and had to be buried in a. Piano case. You You're know what I'm talking, talking about? about Robert Wadlow. No, that's the world's guy. tallest man. Oh, the big guy. Yeah, I yeah. know that picture, though. Yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, but that was the front, and it became known as uh, One Fat Guy yeah. was, was the uh, uh, tape because they had such a fat sound. That was their, it was, uh, that yeah. was their joke. So so anyway, I mean, I mean, this, the story's kind of uh, kind of over, right? Like, we, I came back home to Oklahoma, and I brought this tape, and and I uh, played it for all my friends. And I was like, listen to this band. I never heard anything like it. You know, and I play it for people. Um, and then the next year, uh, so I have to say this while I was in Spokane, uh, I did a lot of networking. I mean, that week I did a lot of network, um, jobs. I did a, a lot of cleanup stuff. I reran cables. I fixed their server. I hooked up network printers. I did all this stuff extra that they needed. And I was a cocky kid, you know, I mean, I was, uh, let's see at 95 in the winter of 95, I was 22, you know? And when I left, they didn't have a full-time computer specialist. And when I left, I said, well, if you guys ever want to hire a full-time computer specialist, you just let me know like that, you know, uh, not having any intention at all of moving 
1,800 miles away from Oklahoma. Um, so I came back and, uh, you know, was working for the FAA still. And uh, sometime in the summer of the following year, in 96, I got contacted by uh, the office. And they said they were going to, you know, hire a computer specialist and would I be interested? And and I was like, yeah, I think so. You know, and then we uh, we talked about it. And it wasn't just a job, it was a federal position, you know, so I'd been a contractor before, and then this was a way to get, get my foot in the door. So um, what do you remember about those times of, of taking that job and moving? Uh, we were so impulsive back then. We, You know, this was not too long after we had dropped out of college to go to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so, I mean, we had no ties here. I mean, our family was here, but we didn't have kids yet. I didn't have a great job at the time. And we were just like, hey, let's go for it. You know, I mean, I don't really remember talking too much about it. It was just like, yeah, let's go for it. You know? Yeah. So, you know, I think we just said if they if they offer me the job, uh, then uh, I'm going to take it. And so they did. And so um, short version is uh, we packed up our stuff and uh, it was kind of a crazy move. But we moved 1800 miles away to Spokane, Washington. And one of my, so I got there, what, a, a month before you did? Yeah. Something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we, we moved separately. So I, I went first and found an apartment to live in and took some of my stuff. And then uh, Susan kind of brought up the rear. We were trying to sell a house here at the time. And um, so I was there for a month with nothing to do. I mean, I didn't know a single person. Uh, I, I didn't know my way around. I didn't know anything. But the one thing that I knew about Spokane did I say that right? Spokane. Uh, Spokane. <laughs> uh, was uh oil filter. That was the one thing I knew. And so uh, I wanted to see if they were still playing, you know. And so I found this um, music store called 4,000 Holes, which is uh, a line from uh, a Beatles song. Uh, what is that song? Day in the Life. Uh, oh. Yeah. 4,000 Holes. And, uh, so I went there and, uh, there was somebody working there and I said, Hey, is, uh, is oil filter still playing? And the girl said, uh, now oil filter is kind of old news. They're not a good band. Uh, but you know, the new thing is this band called, uh, umbilical cord, (laughs) which it turns out her boyfriend was in umbilical cord and I guess, I don't know if the, his dad owned the store. <laughs> I felt like I got duped. So I bought a, uh, umbilical cord on CD. And by the way, uh, no, no fits to those guys, but they were not oil filter. That's not what I wanted. Right. Mm-hmm. But oil filter had put out a second tape, the two fat guy tape, which had the world's heaviest twins riding motorbikes on the cover. So now they had two tapes, one fat guy, a two fat guy. So I bought that tape. And then I think I was leaving and the girl said, hey, there's a battle of the bands. Would that have been, you know what? That may not have been, because that would have been too far in advance. The battle of the bands was in November. It was the first, it was November 2nd, 1996. After I got there. Yeah. yeah. So you had already moved there. Uh, and maybe we'd heard about it somewhere. But uh, um, so there's this whole side adventure which was uh you know so this was august when i moved there then you got there september and and maybe sometime around october 
I had gone to a club somewhere and I saw this magazine. It's a tabloid size magazine, you know, like the Inquirer, like that kind of magazine, right? And I believe it was called Backstage Pass. And it was run by two guys. Hmm. And they said they were looking for, in the magazine, they said they were looking for reporters and, and, and writers and stuff like that, which yeah, magazines are always looking for, especially free magazines, <laughs> are always looking for uh, writers and reporters mm-hmm. and photographers, right? And so I kind of came up with this scheme, which was, hey, I'm going to sign up and be a writer for them, and then I can use that to track down oil filter. And maybe interview them or something, right? I sound like an obsessed fan a little bit, you think? You, you kind of were, in fact, um, a little bit obsessed with them when you came back home. You were like, I want to be friends with these people. And I do feel like that. And, you know, like anything you th- could do to get in their circle, um, this sound weird now, but I, but yeah, you just wanted to hang out with people that were that talented, that cool, that different. You know, it was a totally different world. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to talk about this later, but. You know, like I was like, I wanted that lifestyle, but I didn't want that lifestyle. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was attractive to me. It was interesting to me. They were interesting people. They were doing something that, you know, part of me wants to do. But the reality of me would never do. Oh, God, no. Because they were like living off of the the door proceeds after somebody took a cut and then divided by five. So they might make like 10 bucks a weekend. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it was... Um, a lot of couch surfing. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I was all of a sudden like a federal employee. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, I mean, we weren't making bank back then, but it compared to these bands, we were. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So... Um, so I told these guys that ran this this magazine, and I really don't remember their names, um, but it was two guys. Uh, and I found out real quick that the magazine ran out of one of the guys. I should come up with names. Let's just call him Bill and Bob. Um, Bob, the magazine ran out of Bob's bedroom, and Bob lived at home with his parents. Okay. Bill was five years older than us. I think, and um, uh, a little odd, but, you know, lots of people in the music industry are a little odd. Um, I mean, harmless. I mean, they were writing about music, and they loved music, and, and I thought it was, you know, a cool thing. And I thought, hey, I can write for them, and, and I can hang out and meet musicians, and it just seemed like this this cool fit, right? So right after, I, I think I wrote for them for one month, one issue, you know, uh, and and. I should explain, because I stole the idea, their business model. Their business model was they were going to print free magazines and they were going to try to sell ads to cover the cost of printing free magazines. And then they were going to distribute them around town uh, at clubs. So that was that was basically the, the business model, right? So I learned that from from working with them. Uh, and so, um, after the first month, so this would have been like probably September, October, something like that. When I, when I, uh, met up with these guys, um, maybe that's when I found out that there was going to be a battle of the bands. And so the battle of the bands, uh, I looked up the date was November 2nd, 1996. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, 
main prize, there were six bands, and the the winning prize was time in a recording studio. So um, I don't know if you remember the bands or what you remember, but of course you were in Spokane by that point. Mm-hmm. And so we went to the Battle of the Bands. Okay, so I looked up the article for the Battle of the Bands. This was written by uh, Joe uh, Urbar, who was a reporter for the uh, Spokesman Review. And uh, it says that the radio station KNJY or Z-Rock and KEZE, as well as JF Productions, will stage a Battle of the Bands Saturday, November 2nd at 8 p.m. at the Met, which was the uh, downtown uh medium-sized place, uh, performance hall. It says six local bands ranging from Deathcore to Christian Rock will be vying for free studio time. From 40 entries, six were chosen. And then the six bands listed are Plug Ugly, Major Buzz, Kid Robin, Taint, Morning Breath, and Oil Filter. So which one of those was the Christian band? Um, I believe it was Kid Robin. Without, uh, <laughs> I want to ask you if you have. Uh, oh, and then remember, if you remember, there was a uh, intermission, and it was either I wasn't Cottonmouth. It was a distorted silence. Mm-hmm. It was uh, Jason McKinney mm-hmm. came out, and I don't remember what they sang. Um, but uh, so, yeah. What what do you, what memories do you have of the uh, Battle of the Bands? Well, so this was one of my first times to see Oil Filter. For one thing, would have been the only, it would have been the first time, right? Yeah. So I remember feeling out of place for one thing because uh, come from Oklahoma, super conservative, you know, raising. I did listen to you know Metallica and Anthrax and stuff like that here, but this is it's like miles away from anything that you could ever imagine from those even those. Uh, their appearance was was frightening, I think is what I would say. <laughs> I mean, Matt had these dreadlocks that almost dragged the floor now. You know, they all had their noses pierced. They all had random things pierced. The drummer, Cynthia, um, she was Japanese-American and had her hair colored like, like fire. And her neck was pierced three times. I think the two, um, there were two guitar players um, a bass player and a guitar player, and they look just like normal people, like normal teenage kids, you know. Tony was Tony. on guitar, yeah, yeah, and then the tall Ryan, Ryan, um, and so they look normal, but Matt and Cynthia were so unique, and you could just feel the talent oozing off of them. And I just remember being so moved by like this this music that was just so low. And I mean, we do it now, even talking about it, but you stick your arm out and you hold your hand out like you're almost like you're re- like reaching up for the Sistine Chapel or something. Don't, 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 don't. I mean, it was just crazy and low and slow and nothing. I They were tuned down, right? They were. They tuned down an entire octave. Right. They, they tuned down yeah. a baritone E. So nothing you've ever heard before. And I was surprised at how much I really liked it. And more than one time I got into the pit at one of their shows, which says a lot because that's not, I mean, you see me and you'd be like, no, she's in a business too. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, they were they were just shocking. So I remember the uh, some of the other bands, um, Taint, who we interviewed later for the magazine. We'll talk about them in a minute. Yeah. But uh, they were almost like a Pantera uh, type sound. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of the bands that I don't remember which one it was, uh, you know, some, some of these bands I never saw again, but one of them didn't have a drummer and they had a drum machine. I remember that. And they had set a drum machine. Like they would, they would say like, okay, this is song number three. And then they would walk up to the, the drum machine and press play. And then the, there was two guitars or something, but I thought, you know, that was kind of corny or whatever. And then, um, uh, kid Robin, I mean, they were like, extreme not i mean not lowercase extreme like capital like uh not quite poison but you know what i mean like very pop rock kind Hair, of yes yeah and um and very polished you know uh and so i remember that the other five bands played and um and then the last band of the night was oil filter and i i think my recollection is that during the first five bands nobody stood up you know i mean i think it was just like people you know watching a show and and bands performing or whatever when oil filter came out first of all i remember other people like kind of coming near the stage like people on the sides of the stage um and we had brought uh my camcorder and so i told you uh here's the camcorder i'm going down to the front row (laughs) Which I was happy to hide behind the camcorder because I was petrified. Right. And so um, went down there and um, uh, watched the show. And I think every band was allowed to to play three songs. And I have uploaded those three songs. I will put a link in the show notes to to this performance. Uh, Unfortunately, the tape was so old when I captured it. The tape is not perfect. There's a lot of uh, jumps and stuff in the tape. But... uh, um, they, they, uh, did their three songs. It's was very obvious that they stole the show. I mean, half the people were there to see oil filled. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you said people moved up. I feel like they were politely waiting for oil filter to be there. Yeah. Like they were golf clapping for the other bands. And then when oil filter, they, they came to life when oil filter yeah. was there. Yeah. And so, uh, they did their three songs. People went crazy. You know, we were talking about, uh, uh, the band members. You mentioned Matt, who's the lead singer and guitar player, the guy with the dreads, uh, his girlfriend, Cynthia, the drummer, uh, Tony on, on uh, lead guitar, Ryan on bass, but you forgot corn. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Steve. I don't know why people called him Corn, um, but he played keyboard and samples. Oh, that's right. And um, I never saw anybody play a more metal, maybe Nine Inch Nails, but uh, you know, playing the keyboard. And he would rock the keyboard back and forth, and and you know, throw it. And um, at the end of the show, I mean, people were screaming, "Oil filter!" You know. And then the DJ that had been uh, emceeing the show came out, and he said. Uh, we took a vote, and the winner was Kid Robin, and then he ran off the stage. I mean, people were booing and screaming uh, and wanting Oil Filter to play more, you know. And uh, They were angry. I, this, I won every show. There was always at least one angry person for some reason yelling, Oil Filter! <laughs> Shaking their hand, waving their fist in the air, and a lot of the people were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So after the show, we went out to the lobby. And I had um, maybe a piece of paper or something. I don't remember. And um, when they came out, they were standing around. And I walked up to Matt. And I I really want to paint this picture. Matt, uh, and I don't think he would take offense to me saying this, looked a lot like 
um, Mad Max. You know, I mean, he was wearing all black, black long sleeve uh, shirt, black pants, combat boots. He had a mud flap, which was this big leather thing that, you know, hooked onto his belt that hung down, you know, in the front, like between his legs that went down like past his knees, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pierced nose, long dreadlocks. I mean... A frightening looking individual, would like, you say? Um, and probably what, six four? Oh yeah, huge. A mix between Mad Max and Rob Zombie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. Uh and I walked up and I was like uh well I think I walked up to one of the other guys. I didn't want to walk up to him. I walked up to either Tony or Ryan and I said Hey, uh I'm writing for this new magazine that's in Spokane. I really want to interview you guys. I want to set something up, and they referred me to Matt. And so I went over to Matt. I was a little bit scared, and I said the same thing. And then he said, oh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we would love to talk with you. We would greatly appreciate that or something. <laughs> he was the most polite, uh, just the 180 of his stage presence, you know? Yeah. Um, He's smart. Oh yeah, but on on the flip, his stage presence is like Satan. He is Satan on the stage. <laughs> well, it just definitely you know, just <laughs> focused energy, you know. Yeah, and so um, <laughs> so my plan was coming true. I mean, my whole plan was start with this magazine, and then I would be able to interview Oil Filter, and I would get to interview them, and then that was it. I'd be done with their magazine, right? And so uh, they invited me to their apartment. Matt and Cynthia had an apartment, and all the guys were there. The whole band showed up. And I started interviewing them, and one of them, I think it was Matt, said, why are you doing this for someone else's magazine? Why don't you just do your own magazine? And I was like, you know, I mean, I've thought about it, but, you know. Like, I hadn't thought about it at that point. I don't think there was no plan. But that really planted a seed. I was like, why am I writing this for someone else's magazine? Yeah, you because know? at the time, you had done, you'd worked for the El Reno Light, several different publications at the college level. Newspapers, newspapers right? Newspapers, stuff like that. So you actually had, you know, kind of a lot of experience just not running a business. Right, you know? right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they basically said... Why don't you interview us? And then whenever you do your magazine, this will be like, uh, we'll put us on the cover, you know, exclusive uh, oil filter interview because they, they had a following. Right. And uh, I was like, yeah, I think that makes sense. And so uh, the first issue, I'm jumping ahead for a second, but the first issue came out in January. So basically that gave me a month to create a business to create a magazine uh, and do all that. So this was what I knew from the the guy that was printing uh, Backstage Pass. There was an actual printing press in town. He would uh, he had a server with FTP on it, and he would let you FTP your layout to him, and he would print out your magazines, and then you would go pick them up. Uh, so I knew how to do all that. I had experience with PageMaker. So I knew how to do the layout. Um, and the magazine had to be in multiples of four pages because, uh, you know, it's double width and the front and back of each page. So you could be eight pages, 12, 16, but it had to be a multiple of four. So I think 
I don't remember if uh, I don't remember if the first one was twelve or sixteen pages, but but basically, I said I could do this. I can do this on my own. Now, not to go down a a weird and awkward side story, but basically, I told those other guys I didn't want to work for them anymore. I think in retrospect. This kind of like makes me look like a jerk. Yes. Because I was like, hey, I will write for you for free. And this wasn't my intention when I started, but it was like, hey, I will work. I mean, and they were not paying me, but it was, I'll work for you for free. And then it was basically, I worked there long enough to understand what the business model was. And then I stole their business model. Right. And in retrospect, you know, there's politics and everything like there's probably some history with Matt and the people that own that other thing. And he's like, yeah, forget them, you know? Right. There's way more to the story than we even know. But yes, it did make you look like a jerk. Right. Yeah. So, um, did you think I was a jerk? I just, I mean, now, in retrospect, I think it made you look like a jerk. Back then, I was like, oh, that's fun. Right. You know? Okay. Yeah. Uh, So, basically, we said, okay, well, I'm going to do my own magazine. So, we, I figured out. I called this guy, the the printing guy, and I want, and, and I'm kind of using rough and round numbers because I don't remember exactly, uh, but I want to say that uh, it was going to cost three hundred dollars to print around five hundred copies. So the first month, I only printed five hundred copies. Um, now. When I worked for the El Reno Light, which was a local newspaper, I interned there when I was in college, I learned a very important lesson. Uh, I I walked in. They told me when I interned there that they had a staff of uh, around 20 people, I think. And uh, so when I went over the first time to the El Reno Light, I met the staff. I met some of the staff. There was uh, the guy who was the managing editor slash head writer there was his assistant a woman who was the head photographer slash writer and the other 18 people worked in the ad department slash writer Uh, no 100 dedicated to selling ads oh gosh and so i remember one time asking that guy the editor what i should write about or what kind of articles i should do And he said, let me tell you how this newspaper works. Uh, Those people go sell all the ads, and then they lay out the newspaper of all the ads. And when they are done, we write the stories and take the pictures that fill in what space is left. So the business model was that was a machine designed to sell ads. And the rest of it was fluff to get people to buy papers. Um, I mean, that's, that's what it was. Right. And so for my magazine, I knew that. Right. And so I knew, Hey, the number one thing that we have to do is sell ads and we've got to sell. I don't want the whole thing to be ads, but we need to sell enough ads to copy or to um, cover our monthly costs. And so I remember what I did was, uh, I said, okay, uh, a uh, for the month to print all the copies was $300. So I decided a full one-page ad would be $300. And then I divided that in half, a half-page ad, 
And then, so that would be 150 and I rounded it up just a little bit. So I was like, okay, a half page ad would be, you know, 180 or something like that. And then a quarter page ad, which should have been 75 would have been 85 or so. And down to, I think we had business card size, which was like 20 or 30 bucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. So as we formulated this plan to start a magazine and it didn't have a name yet, it just kind of had this idea but what we decided was I would do the layout uh, because I knew Photoshop. And uh, I think I took pictures, but either of us could have taken pictures. It didn't matter. Uh, but I would write the stories that filled the pages and you would sell the ads. Is that how you remember it? Or uh, That's how I remember it. And now in retrospect, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> Well, what part did you want to do? You want to write stories? I wanted to get into shows for free. <laughs> you got into a lot of shows for free with me. I don't think you wanted to go to them. Uh, so that was the business model. Now we needed a name, and I honestly don't remember who came up uh, with the name. If it was me or you or us or whatever, but I have been very blessed with the ability to come up with great names. I mean, anytime there's a project or a program or anything like that. I'm usually able to come up with a catchy yeah. style name, you yeah. know? And so the name I came up with was in tune magazine, which had a, a double meeting. Uh, first of all, you know, you have instruments, they have to be in tune, right? So uh, it was a music term, you know, in tune magazine, but also it was supposed to relay that we were in tune with the local music scene. You know, we were tuned in, we, we knew, what was going on. And so, um, you want to know something funny about that? Yep. I have a very distinct memory of driving up and down division street in your little purple Dodge neon past, like the, all of the stuff that was there for the world's fair, that giant wagon. You remember that? Mm -hmm. all that? Yep. Having a conversation about what we should name the magazine. I don't know why, but, uh, anyway, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No. So, um, uh, I, I remember we had business cards made up. You probably handled that. Probably all the, all the, Adulting, I guess. Right. I set up the website. I set up a website and yeah. an email address. Uh, an email address would have been pretty new. I mean, this was um, 96, so not a lot of people yeah. had email, you know. Um, but uh, so that was that was the idea. And I remember um, my plan. I mean, the, the plan was like. It's hard to explain, but really the plan was to meet oil filter. <laughs> yeah, there, it, you, your goal never was to make $301. It was to make close to enough to cover the cost. Right, because uh, so so what happened was uh, the first month came and uh, we made close to, I, I don't think we lost big money. I think we always came close <laughs> to coming. cost $300. Right. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, it's not like we sold $100 worth of ads. Yeah. I mean, we, it would have been ballpark 300 ish I think. Uh, but we sold the ads. Um, do you remember some of the companies or, like, the selling of the ads? Oh, yeah. And again, so just remember, I mean, like, I'm conservative girl from Oklahoma, um, just normal business type person haircut. I wear colors, <laughs> you know, I don't have any tattoos. I'm not opposed to them. I don't have any weird piercings or anything like that. So 
I remember uh, going to places like that 4,000 Holes record store. Some they had, There still were local record stores at the time. Going into these clubs that honestly, like Ichabod's, where all this started for you, should have been condemned 50 years ago. I mean, so rundown places. Everything was always dark and smoky. Everyone smelled like pot or incense, right? Uh, totally out of my element. I remember going into tattoo stores and they're just be and and they were usually very kind people, you know, um, and that's where I really learned to not be afraid of people who were like artistic or whose faces were pierced up or, you know, who here in Oklahoma you'd be like, okay, you know, and remember twenty five years ago too, here in Oklahoma we'd be like, that's not a person I'm going to hang out with, and and going into those kind of places and talking to him and learning how like quirky and interesting and. We call them the spice of life people now, but I was completely out of my element going into these tattoo parlors and stuff like that. And, uh, oh, remember we went to a, a, like a used clothing store that was on Division Street that sold like all kinds of cool stuff. It was like pretty close to where the interstate was. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I was not cool enough to be in that store. I wasn't cool enough to be in any of these places, but the people were really nice, you know? <laughs> There, there was a uh, one tattoo place that instead of paying for an ad, wanted to give me a tattoo. Oh, I know you wish you'd done it. <laughs> no, they wanted to give me a Darth Vader. Remember a Darth right. Vader tattoo? And that would have been way better than whatever money because you'd still have that. Tattoo. That would be a story for sure. Yeah, um, but you also yeah, might have herpes or whatever. But, That's true. Yeah. So um, I think I don't think you get herpes from me. I think you get hepatitis. Oh. Huh. Um, but uh, which doesn't explain why I have herpes. Right. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, um, uh, do you want Do you want to tell the story about the uh, first time that we went to Ichabod's and that you uh, oh went God. to the bathroom? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm trying to paint the picture for Ichabod's. What I remember of it is, is that everybody in there looked like Rob Zombie, for one thing, like all the, the guys. And that was the first night I met that guy whose face was all pierced up and we can't remember his name. Like more than 50 things pierced on his face. <laughs> Super, very kind person. Um, and you were off like being starstruck, kind of standing by the front of the stage and completely darked out place. Everybody's wearing black. I mean, kind of painting this picture, very condemnable type building. I go off into the bathroom, right? And there are, I don't know, maybe four or five stalls in there and then a counter, you know, typical ladies room kind of run down and stuff. I use the bathroom. And when I come out, there's a group of girls and they have a line of cocaine on the back of one of the toilet stalls and they're all snorting coke. And I remember feeling like impending doom, like we're all going to jail <laughs> and maybe hell. You know what I mean? And um, I'd never seen anybody do any kind of drugs in my entire life ever. Not in Oklahoma then, you know, with the crowds that I ran with and stuff like that. And I remember coming up to you, you were standing in front of the stage and like tugging on your shirt and I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God, Rob, they're doing drugs. They're doing drugs in the right. bathroom. No. So <laughs> I was standing yeah, by the front of the stage. I think I was talking to maybe one of the guys from Oil Filter, and I was like, Yeah, I'm pretty cool now. I got my own <laughs> magazine, you know. And then my wife bursts out of the bathroom and comes in. She's like, They're doing cocaine. They're doing cocaine. And I was like, Okay, okay. <laughs> Calm down. And then I was like, Oh, yeah, I've seen lots of people do cocaine. Oh, you know? yeah. I had seen people do cocaine on, in movies. <laughs> uh, maybe I remember wanting to leave. And 
that was whenever like we learned that there was a back door that same night, there was a back door to Ichabod's and like they let you, they let you help them carry their equipment out. And it seems like a lot of their equipment had duct tape on it for some reason. (laughs) Now I know why, but, um, yeah, I was just completely the most out of element. I, I could be like there's right. nowhere further on this earth that would be more out of my element. Well, and so, you know, this kind of leads into, so, so let me tell this. Um, I somehow managed to fill 12 pages of fluff garbage. Um, I mean, I wrote a, a article that took up, I mean, I, you know, like all the tricks that kids use in school to make their report meet the limit of five pages. Like, I would put big pictures. Um, I did a whole thing of horoscopes, but called it horror scopes. And I made them like funny horoscopes or scary or something, you know. I mean, anything I could think of, really, to... Uh, um, I think it was like... Something that like I think that was the month that Sepultura had broke up or something. It was on MTV News, and I wrote an article about how important that was. I mean, just just things like that. Just lots of adjectives and adverbs. Yes, just anything <laughs> to draw these things out. Yeah. So a lot of it was garbage, and then right in the middle, I had this huge oil filter interview, and I don't think anybody had gotten close to them before. You know. Um, and it was definitely a mutual, uh, it was a mutually beneficial relationship because I got what I wanted. I got that access to the most popular band in town, the heaviest band, the coolest band. And all of a sudden I was kind of on the inner circle, right? But they got what they wanted. I mean, all of a sudden, they got, you know, they were the feature in a local magazine. Like, um, and it didn't matter that I made it in my room. And it didn't matter that I was using a, you know, an old copy of, of PageMaker and some crappy graphic things and what it, none of that mattered. At the end of the day, it got printed and we dropped these copies off at magazine, you know, at, at, uh, clubs around town and and music stores and uh, and the next day oil filter was everywhere and, and I'm not I'm not um, trying to say that I, I was part of their popularity they were already popular you know what I mean but all of a sudden it was like they were in a magazine and it was a big deal to them it was a big deal to a lot of people whereas I mean when you're behind the scenes you know it's like I'm just a guy that printed a a thing you know but but what happened in my memory of it is the next day our phone at home started ringing. I mean, people started calling. People started wanting to drop off CDs for me to review. People started contacting us, wanting us to come see their band at club shows. People wanted, uh, you know, they wanted to be in the magazine. They wanted to be the, the featured band, you know, and, and, um, you know, going back to those guys at the backstage pass, the other magazine, um, they, they were from Spokane. So they knew the local people and they had local ties. I remember there was one time we went to a, a, a place to sell an ad and they go, no, we advertise with the other guys. Mm-hmm. We won't advertise with you. So there was definitely, you know, some territory pissings going on, but the difference was. 
that I had been going to college to work on a degree in journalism. So I had spent the last two years laying out newspapers using PageMaker. I had spent the last two years learning how to write journalism style articles, you know, uh, so my magazine looked professional mm-hmm. and theirs looked like a couple of guys were trying to put something together. And so, uh, right or wrong, mine got the attention. Yeah. I want to say something about that too, mm-hmm. though, which is, you know, there are so many stories of people's big break, how, how, you know, Pamela Anderson was seen at a baseball game and blah, blah, blah. If the stars had aligned, that could have been the thing that broke them in, and changed their lives. Like they could still be a professional band now if, let's say, you know, somebody, because we were, you know, up there by Seattle when all the grunge stuff was happening and all that. Uh, somebody comes to town, some band comes to town, big band. They pick up copies of stuff in the clubs they're playing to, and they're like, I want to see this oil filter. I mean, it could have gone so well for them if they could have just gotten their act together. But it didn't happen that way. But the way that that, um, the, that first magazine looked, I mean, it really could have been the stepping stone for something amazing for them. Right. Well, and, and all these, uh, clubs, you know, people came and went people, you know, like you said, people, bands traveling in, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people coming in. I mean, the word, you know, got around, you know, uh, there was another band at the time, uh, called Cottonmouth, and their lead singer was this guy, Jason McKinney. He was a super talented guy. He was actually, he was in multiple bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a lead singer of Distorted Silence. Um, I think he had been in a, a band called, um, Malicious, either Malicious Intent or Malicious Mischief. Yeah, Malicious Mischief. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he was in this band with Cottonmouth, but, Two of the guys in Cottonmouth, the lead guitar player and the drummer, were brothers. And their dad uh, wanted them to make it in the music industry, mm-hmm. you know. And so those guys reached out to me several times. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that the dad was probably behind it, which is okay. I mean, that's not, uh, uh, you know, slagging them or anything. But uh, he knew... You know, he wanted his kids' band to be in that magazine. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, I was getting invited to uh, Gondos was their last name. And uh, uh, I was getting invited to their house for practice. You know, they would say, hey, Cottonmouth is having a practice. Come and see what we're working on, you know. Uh, so we, I was doing that. Um, I believe it was... Uh, Yes, when Cottonmouth was in the studio. Mm-hmm. And so um, tell me about, about your memories of that. Well, I mean, so first of all, Jason McKinney is the star of any band he's in. Um, he is he is like a savant when it comes to music. Um, so, I mean, he was in multiple bands. They all sounded the same to me. I mean, he, he could do different styles of music and stuff like that. But he was just so crazy creative. He could scat. He could scat hard death metal. I mean, he could just, he could do all this crazy stuff. His voice had this range. He just felt, and it was like, he, he was like streams of consciousness. He was such an amazing performer. Um, and I remember going to that, that studio and of course out of water, like the people know Rob, they all want something from Rob. So they're being super nice to him. And I'm just kind of standing on the side and, and recording sessions are painful if you're not part of what's going on. Yeah. Multiple, multiple takes. I mean, I was just listening to, uh, 
some NPR show the other day about the Beatles and they were like, Oh, they got this song in only 14 takes. Right. So, I mean, multiple, multiple takes of little tiny tidbits and stuff like that. Um, and people in and out, there's always like in the presence of somebody that's doing something cool, there are lots of people who want to hitch their wagon on that star. Mm. And I would say lots of people coming in and out to see what was going on, be a part of it, have their name part of it. Um, uh, other than that, I don't remember too much, you know. I remember. Um, I don't. I don't remember if you were there that night, but um, around the time they were finishing up recording the album, but I, I was there for um, the majority of the recording of uh, Cottonmouth's album. Uh, they wanted to make a hidden track that was just noise, and so there were microphones all around the studio, and they just told everybody they were like, "Grab something that makes noise." And go to a microphone, and we're going to make noise for 30 seconds, and I'll fade it in, and I'll fade it out, and it'll be, we'll make it a hidden track. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, somebody grabbed this little toy xylophone thing that was laying there, and somebody grabbed a pair of scissors, and they were snipping these scissors, and of course, Jason McKinney was just howling in the microphone and making these noises. And I think at one point he's barking like a dog mm-hmm. and I was looking for an instrument and I couldn't find anything. And I grabbed a, um, a aluminum can of Coke. And so I got by the microphone and I was just twisting this Coke can like crunch, 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 you know? Uh, and, um, right at the very end, the guy who was, uh, the producer, he was like, you know, kind of made the sign like we were over. And right when he was done, I ripped, I mean, I had twisted the can so many times that it ripped in half, and I started laughing. And if you've listened to the show, you know that I have a um, I'm laughing anyway, uh, a distinct laugh. And so, if you listen to this hidden track at the very end of it, I mean, you could hear the Coke can, you could hear all the things. The very end, as it's fading out, you could hear me laughing. <laughs> oh, that's like your moment of fame. There you go. Right there. I'm on the uh, uh, Cottonmouth uh, CD, so. Lots of bands that started hitting us up and they started um, uh, wanting us to come to the studio. If they were recording, they wanted us to come to their practices. And then balancing all this out, I would say, you know, I was hanging out with Oil Filter a lot. You know, I was going to their band practices sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hanging out with them sometimes. But uh, I want to talk just for a minute about the two lives I was leading at that point. (laughs) Um, During the day, I was a federal employee. I was working for the United States government 
as a computer specialist. I did computer systems. I did repairs. I did all these things. I was the backbone for an office full of safety inspectors, the guys that went out and looked at airplanes. I was doing the IT support for these guys. I would come home after work, maybe take a nap for a couple hours, and then we would maybe, I don't know, maybe longer than that, but by the time it was 7 or 8 o'clock, then we were going to bars, and I never paid to go into a bar. Like I was like, either they recognized me, they were like, oh, it's the magazine guy, or like oil filter, somebody would be like, oh, he's on the list or whatever. I mean, I don't know if these places... We were on everybody's list. Yeah. yeah. And so we would just waltz in, and we would go and stay till when? Oh, till they closed, too. Right. A lot of times, yeah. Or until it got shut down by the fire department or whatever. <laughs> and then come home mm-hmm. and go to bed and then go back to that other other life. And so um, I was... I felt drawn to this lifestyle because I was... Becoming popular in a way, uh, and I don't want to oversell it, you know, but it wasn't that I was popular because of who I was. It was because I had something they wanted. Right, because of what you could do for them. They wanted to be in the magazine. Yeah. Which was fine with me. I didn't care. I don't care the reason. I was not popular. I still wore pink. You know what I mean? Well, I think the difference between you and I is that... um, I wanted to be friends with these people, and you did not want to be friends with these people. Yeah, I never was starstruck. I now, I, like I will say, I, th- I do think it changed me. I enjoyed that kind of music, and I still do. But I didn't want to be part of their culture. I was cool being a spectator, right? I, in fact, I, there were lots of times when I would either hide behind the camera, or in my mind, I would pretend like I was some kind of a record producer, and that. I looked out of place on purpose because I was like there to scout them just to get myself through the pain of being so awkwardly, <laughs> not them. Um, so, uh, so I got to tell this story. The, um, I, I had started growing my hair out. I mean, my hair was like <laughs> dumb kid, right? Well, so and, and after high school, I had that, I mean, my hair was sort of long and I got that hairdo, um, the first person I saw with it was Mike Patton from Faith No More, where he had grown his hair out, and then he had shaved his head all the way around, so the sides and the back were shaved, but the top was super long. And so that was the look I was going for, except for my head looked like some weird mushroom thing, because my hair doesn't is so thick that it doesn't lay flat. It's like... And your ponytail curled up like Nellie Olson. Who? You know, from Little House on the Prairie, how she had those curly hairs? No. Yeah, it was just like a big ringlet. Yeah. It it wasn't cool. Um, But I desperately, I was growing it out. I desperately wanted to fit in, right? And so I went to the local beauty college place, (laughs) and I talked to someone, and I was like, I really want to make I do something cool and this and that. And we were talking, and we decided... What would what would make my hair cool would be to to dye it. Um, my hair at that time was what would you say jet black? Jet black. Uh, and black uh, facial hair. No, I don't even think I had any facial hair. Yeah, back and forth, you know. Yeah, yeah. but black hair. And uh, so they put me. You know, they took my hair, and she said, "Oh, she's gonna do these layers, and she was gonna do highlights and make it look natural and stuff." <laughs> 
Uh, so I remember being in the chair. I remember having the like a lady, like an old lady with the heater thing on my head, you know. And uh, eventually when they were done, she took started taking the stuff off and looked at me and gasped. And said, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'll be right back. And she left and came back with about four other women and a manager. And the manager said, sir, don't worry about it. This will be completely free. <laughs> and I was like, how, what is going on? How bad is it? And she took all the stuff off. And my hair, now, I, I would say wet. Of course, it hung longer when it was wet because it was straight, right? But, I mean, it was to my mouth level, would you say? Yeah. I mean, it was parted down the middle. Right. Shaved on the sides, but just long straight. About to my chin, maybe. I mean, you know. And it was, I believe, the two terms that we have used is nuclear yellow. Mm -hmm. uh, And someone told me it was the color of nacho cheese at the fair. Yeah. Just nasty, needs a tone yellow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so what is your memory of that when I came home? Well, yeah, you were super excited, uh, because that was definitely something that was going to stand out. Right. Your hair felt like, hay. completely felt like, hay. yeah, it like killed it. It killed my hair. It killed a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, I remember going to work the next day wearing uh, a button-down shirt, maybe a tie, uh, dockers, and a baseball cap. And someone was like, why are you wearing a baseball cap? And I took it off, and I'm pretty... And by the way, we were the youngest people in our office by 30 years. Oh, yeah. Um, Most of the men in my office were 50 to 70 years old. And um, (laughs) I'm sure there was plenty of talk around the office. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My God. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the way this story ends is uh, one day um, I was in the shower and I noticed that Susan's hair had started falling out. I was in the shower and I noticed that there was blonde hair in the drain. And uh, after I got out of the shower, I was like, Susan, I think your hair's falling out. And she said, that ain't my hair. <laughs> yeah. But before that... You had let it grow out so that the middle oh, was yeah. a black a black stripe right up the middle, and it looked like a skunk hair. And here you are in this well, like job, a reverse skunk, like a reverse skunk. You're in this job where you're having to travel around the country to other offices representing the United States government with your skunk hair. <laughs> you know, it was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah. So it all broke off, and actually, it was kind of cool when it broke off because the black had grown out, and it just like little looked like frosted little yellow tips on the end, and and it started getting soft again. But yeah, it was like the worst hair. Ever. I mean, when it felt, I mean, eventually, I had to, well, the problem was I looked like I'd been having like chemo because it was like my hair was coming out in just like big you chunks. Did. And so, this is what I want you to remember when our son dyes his hair pink and blonde and this and that kind of stuff. Your hair is way worse than his has ever been. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. You didn't think it was cool? Uh, no. Uh, no. She's lying. She's trying to be cool on the podcast, but um, I'm sure she thought I would look like a rock star. Okay. 
<laughs> Moving on. You don't agree with that? No. I think you look like a desperate person wanting to fit in. With oh, come on. Now. I, pier- I pierced my cartilage on my ear to be cool. Remember that? No, I do remember And that. your mom thought I had a piece of poop in my ear when she came to visit. <laughs> poop? She was like, yeah, I remember she picked at it and she's like, is there poop in your ear? She, that's what she said. She it looked, it did look like a piece of poop. I mean, it was a little black thing in my ear in a weird spot and no one in Oklahoma had ever pierced a cartilage before. So, but what that's, like that's a weird go-to. You could say like, Oh, is there a fleck or there's a, maybe she said, is there something in your ear? All right. But anyway, so, um, I want to get to a couple of stories. Well, the first one is that there was a band called Silent Rage. And Silent Rage was uh, a rock band. I don't think they were heavy metal. And um, they, like a lot of bands in Spokane, wanted to be in the magazine. They wanted magazine coverage. And so they uh, said, hey, why don't you come to our uh, practice or whatever? And I said, okay. And so I went, and I didn't even really know this band, you know. And I I went to this band, uh, I went to their practice, and listened to them play a few songs. And when they were done, they were like, hey, we got you a little something. And it was a like a practice drum head that they had all signed. And so... (laughs) It was very awkward, uh, and I was like, "Thanks." Like, I, it was a kind of a strange thing. I, I mean, I'm if they had become a huge band, it would that would be cool, right? But I'm sure they all work at Seven Eleven now. I, no, I don't know that, but I'm sure that they weren't a band six months later. Oh no, you know? no. Um, and the other thing they gave me was a lanyard and a thing that said "Silent Rage <laughs> All Access." Backstage pass or something like that, which was funny because no club had a backstage area. The door just went to the parking lot. Like there was no like green room in any of these. I know, and they spent money on that for you. They did. They yeah. made that just for me. So, um, but that did lead to something good because they said, "Hey, we're going to be opening for L.A. Guns." Yeah. Which was a big national band. Right. I mean, L.A. Guns, Tracy Guns. Half of Guns and Roses. Half of Guns and Roses. Right. And uh, I was like, this is, uh, you know, could be an end for me. Right? Yeah. And uh, so they were like, hey, you coming to the show to see us? I was like, oh, yeah. And I mean, I you know, I did cover them because they did me the favor to get me in. But uh, I want to say... The show started at nine or something like that, and I went at five o'clock. <laughs> and uh, I was there, and the bus pulled up, and it was LA Guns. I mean, and this was uh, so you have to know the I mean, this is the history of LA Guns. LA Guns was a huge band. Uh, I mean, they were a big rock band. Then they had their ballad, What Happened to Jane. They were huge. And then the entire band had a huge falling out, and Tracy uh, Tracy Guns kicked everybody out of the band. And he found this other band that he liked and just became the guitar player of that band and called it L.A. Guns. So this is not L.A. Guns at all. But it's Tracy Guns. It is Tracy Guns and three guys that are really not L.A. Guns. Three guys that were a different band. Probably hired musicians, like not partners. Yeah. Uh, and the next year, they're all out of of L.A. Guns. So this is a very brief moment in time that I just happened to, to be a part of. So I went uh, and I took my camcorder. And I, you went with me. I did. Mm-hmm. And um, 
LA, uh, LA guns came in and set up all their equipment and stuff. And they did sound checks and we were there the whole time. I mean, it was like almost like a band, but in a, in a cafeteria, you know what I mean? Like that kind of feeling where the lights are on, it's not a rock show. It's just like guys playing songs, you know? Uh, and one person is not there on stage. No, Tracy guns, Tracy guns is sitting, uh, in, in the, uh, bus. And so, um, I spent, I don't know, half an hour talking with, uh, the lead singer who also played rhythm guitar and, uh, the bass player of LA guns. They were from a band. I think the band was called Boneyard. I don't remember, but, uh, the bass player did the, uh, LA guns website. And so he and I were talking about websites and, uh, I mean, I had a good conversation with those guys that it was a lot of fun. And at some point I had to ask, Hey, where's Tracy guns? <laughs> and they said, he stays on the bus. And after we, I mean, when we start the show, he walks off the bus and onto the stage, they hand him a guitar. He plays the show at the end of the show. He hands the guitar to somebody. He walks off and gets on the bus. Right. Just for a pause for a second there. Uh-huh. Just like Axl Rose does now on Guns N' Roses, by the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Exactly, and we've seen him many times, so... That is true. That way every time. Right. Anyway. Um, So, but I did uh, get to talk to the guys from L.A. Guns, and I covered that story. And, I mean, that was, like, for me... I don't know, they weren't my favorite band, but they were the most famous band. Yeah, they had a bus. (laughs) Right, they didn't have a car that had to be push-started. Right. I mean, I think about, like, some of the things, the bands that we saw and knew in Spokane... Like, I could see them driving down the street with bass drum, like, held on to the top of the roof because they didn't have a car big enough to hold a bass drum. <laughs> right. You know? Right. So, this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so, I want to tell this one other story, which isn't really um, directly with Intune, but it's the same time. It's a concert story. Uh, well, before I tell this story, let me let me say this. So, Intune, at this point, has been going for, like, three months uh, and I had increased the circulation. It wasn't that much more to go from, I think, 500 copies to 1,500 copies. Mm-hmm. So, um, you want to talk at all about, like, I mean, distribution or... You know, so distribution, everything about this magazine was hustle for us. Uh, you were hustling for articles. We hustled for ads all the time. Always driving around, lots of driving. And then we hustled for places to put the magazine, which is, I mean, if you don't have a place to put it, then nobody is interested, right? So music stores, um, restaurants in the front of clubs that can sign all the places that had ads, tattoo shops, everything. And it was literally us driving around with stacks of magazines going in and asking, Hey, can we set these by your front entrance? And some people who were fans of the other magazine would be like, yeah, some people would be like, or, you know, they'd be like, no, because we're doing the other magazine. Some people would be like, sure, whatever. And again, people are just super friendly, you know, and we were kids really. Um, I don't really think we ended up with that many leftover copies when no. it was all said and done, you know, but it was hustle. It was us just asking people and having to have courage. It's a staff and- of two. Yeah, yeah. Um, And you were, uh, I remember there was some guy, I want to say, I think it was called Butterscotch Records, uh, that contacted us. It was like, hey, I want to add. And he was like 
not our demographic. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. a rapper or DJ kind of thing or whatever, but we were, I mean, we would take anybody's money and we went and like met him at Kinko's or something. Remember yeah. like late one night, but, but there was a lot of that just randomly, you know, meeting people and stuff. Um, I would say too, that a lot of the stuff, um, Rob was good at interviewing and writing. And I'm telling you, my experience selling Girl Scout cookies, cold calling people really paid off because like, I have no problem talking to anybody. I mean, anybody. Sure. Um, even if I'm out of my element, because it's always trying to get that sale. So that was seemed to be a lot of my job. I mean, we were always together, but I always did the talking, which is a nice segue into the next story. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, well, actually, you know, there's a few stories I wanted to tell. One was, do you remember the night that I interviewed Boba Fett Youth? The- oh, God. Yeah. Yes. So Boba Fett Youth was a punk band out of Las Vegas. And they were touring around uh, the Northwest. And uh, I guess they had a, you know, a little bit of a following or something. And um, they were the guys in the... Well, first of all, uh, right off the bat, I liked them because... A, they were punk rock. I mean, this was not, uh, and they sound, they were punk rock like Sex Pistols type punk rock. They were not heavy metal. They were not, you know, I mean, they were just flat out punk, you know. Um, and they were called Boba Fett Youth. There is no bigger Star Wars fan than me. Right. The front of their CD had this really goofy drawing of Yoda. They had stickers they were giving away of Boba Fett helmets that said Boba Fett Youth. I loved everything about them. I loved their shtick. I love the whole thing. And again, they were a national band. So I was like, you know, I'm definitely going to interview them after the show. Mm-hmm. And they came over after the, and I didn't know what to ask. You know what I mean? I mean, just the general interview questions, like how long you've been on the road. Uh, and, and, but they were Star Wars guys. So I was going to throw in some fun Star Wars questions, you know? And um, so they came over. Were you there when I was interviewing them? Yeah. Okay. And so there were, you know, there's four guys in the band, you know, a guitar, bass, drummer, and then the lead singer. The guitarist, the bass player, and the drummer were all super cool. And they knew what this opportunity was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And not saying that I'm, you know, God's gift to journalism or whatever, but, you know, anytime you could get coverage in a, a band, you know, in a magazine, get your name out there, sell some merchandise, whatever. The lead singer came over and was doing the punk rock shtick. The persona. Yes. He was trying to be Johnny Rotten. Yep. You know, I mean, I was like, I was, I was asking like how long they've been on the road. And he was like, well, how long you been on your mama? I mean, just, just being belligerent. And then to the point where then I started to get mad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think I laughed. Like, tried to walk away, and the guitarist was like, he's just doing that to you, you know. But I was like, yeah, I'm trying to help your band. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't know if you remember anything else about I that. I absolutely remember it, and I remember being furious. I get the whole persona thing, too. But they were jerks. And it's, and there was one thing. I have a memory about the way that the bass player held his, his you know, his machine and he was disrespectful to his instrument. And I remember thinking that before we interviewed him and then they had this, they were trying too hard for the persona 
And they were not the kind of people where like Jason McKinney, who I was like, he's a savant. I feel amazed in his presence kind of thing. And these people were just punks. I mean, they were, and I, I figure like, I hope they never went anywhere. And I hate to say that because they were such jerks. And, um, I didn't see any artistic genius in them at all, you know? Yeah. It was just unfortunate because like I said, all I ever wanted to do was like, I'm, to help a band, if I jumped up and, and grabbed a guitar, I'm not going to help your band. <laughs> I'm going to make your band worse. Yeah, you your you talent know? For stuff, yeah. Right, but I could write, you know, and yeah. I could help these guys get publicity. And I had a website. I could put, you know, their name and their stories up on the web, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and I could help them do things. Uh, and then to just like, not literally, but figuratively spit my eye and be like, you know, we're just going to be jerks the whole time. Uh, it just really made me mad. It, now, though, in retrospect, it shows how unseasoned we were and naive in that that whole arena. I'm, I'm guessing if we'd been doing this for 30 years now, we would see him from a mile away and be like, "Yeah, I'm just not wasting my time with you." You know what I mean? Like that's a thing that people do, and you're not you're not going to go anywhere because of that crap. Either that, or do the whole interview, let them be jerks, and then publish it, and then. Not not to make them look bad, but just be like, I mean, I'm sure Axl Rose has given bad interviews and people publish it anyway and people want to read it because it's Axl Rose. Axl. You know what I mean? Yeah. But so this is the whole thing. They weren't professionals. And that's the thing is behind the scenes, like there's certain ways you act when you're around people who are performers and people who are any part of the industry and they weren't doing their part. No. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between yeah. doing it on stage. And doing it to a guy that's trying to help you Right. Behind the scenes, you're still supposed to be like a person who's, you know. I was holding a CD I just paid $10 for. You know what I mean? Like I was, every time a band came through, every time, you can attest to this. Oh, yeah. I would always, you know, I I heard so many horror stories from bands who were like, we're trying to sell enough merchandise to have gas to make it to the next show. Right. And I would always buy a shirt or a CD or stickers, something uh, to help them out. Yep. You know, I always did that. Yep. So, um, so, uh, man, I feel like I had one more story before Boba Fett youth. So you're going to oh. talk about how the magazine ended. So I talk about oil filter and then I got to talk about snot. Oh yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, this was like probably the last month of the magazine. It hadn't really, I was still working on it. And, uh, Oil Filter told me that they had been invited to play an outdoor show. And uh, so I remember going over to their practice. And so my whole thing was I was going to cover I was going to cover this show for the magazine. Right. And it was uh, three bands and it was an outdoor performance. It was on some guy that owned whatever it was, 10 acres of land or whatever. Uh, and there was a, a natural rock stage, you know, like literally rocks. Like Red Rock. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the bands were going to perform on that. And so it was a couple of bands and then Oil Filter uh, was the last to perform. They were the headliners. So first of all, I, I remember beforehand, uh, I went over to where Oil Filter was practicing uh, and they were like, so somebody's car had broken down. Could I help drive some of the equipment to the show? <laughs> and also two members of oil filter. <laughs> you were like so happy. Oh yeah. I was thrilled. And I was like, sure you bet. So we, we put, um, 
uh, I think some drums and guitars and stuff in the car and drove to this show again. I mean, this show is like 30 minutes away from Spokane. It was in like Coeur d'Alene. Okay. Mm-hmm. We get out in the middle of nowhere and the guy's like, okay, it's $10, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, cause I was driving and I was like, well, I'm with the band We're we're delivering. And he was like, every car that comes through here says they're with the band, you know, and Matt was in the front seat. He's like, I'm lead singer of oil filter. And the guy was super mad, but he let us in for free. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he was like, and you're with the band to me. And Matt goes, yeah, he's basically the sixth member. And so the guy was like, so he gave me a, uh, a band thing, like a, uh, a wrist, you know, whatever you call it, a sticker on your wrist, wristband, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were different ones for the band, and I got one of those. And I remember just driving to the spot where the bands go and being like, I'm the sixth member of Oil Filter. <laughs> <laughs> <That's so sad>. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was such a big deal. And by, by the way, you get to be the sixth member of Oil Filter by being the guy who had a car that ran that <laughs> night, right? So, um, uh, the other bands are playing, and if you had a band wristband, you got to drink for the keg for free. And there were other people that had uh, like alcohol and stuff. And also, the entire place smelled like pot. Now, I couldn't smoke anything because I was a federal employee. <laughs> but I got a feeling that this cloud of haze probably had some effect on me. So we're in this field. We've been drinking. It's been 90 degrees. I mean, it's this, you know, summer day, right? Everybody is just exhausted, tired, you know, waiting for this. I do remember this. Um, Cottonmouth had just recorded some new songs in the studio, and they were like, hey, we got this new tape. Let's go listen to it in your car. And people were pulling me into their cars and, and playing music for me and stuff. I mean, it's a really fun day, right? So these other bands are performing. And now it's finally oil filter. And I am telling you this. I am drunk, like bad drunk. I remember standing on some rocks and somebody goes, you know, there's rattlesnakes in there. And I was like, huh? (laughs) And somebody who told me to move, I guess I was standing somewhere where there were snakes. I don't really remember the details, but um, oil filter starts playing and they play a couple of songs And apparently, it is so loud that someone has called the police on this party. I think we're in the middle of like 10 acres. I don't know how anybody could hear this, but it's late at night. I mean, it's probably midnight. And here come, there's this long dirt road that leads up to where this field is. And police cars start coming up the road, like two or three police cars. They come up the road and they stop. Now, you know when you're out in a field, and especially when it's at night, you got your headlights on and you can see the the dust, you know, billowing in the headlights or whatever. And Oil Filter had this song that started off with a keyboard sample from a movie. And it's a conversation that ends with the phrase, I hate effing cops. And then the song, it starts repeating that or like a chant over and over. I hate effing cops. I hate effing cops. And it does it over and over, and then the song starts. So these cops have come up this dirt road. There are 50 cars 
parked all throughout a field. There are hundreds of people standing around. The cops start wanting to find out who's in charge of all this stuff. And, and you know, it's kind of quiet. And all of a sudden, Corn, the keyboard player of Oil Filter, turns on his keyboard. I hate effing cops. <laughs> and starts doing it over and over and over. I hate effing cops. And now people start chanting along, right? You know who's not amused in this story? The two car full of police officers, right? Then someone chunks a beer bottle. Somebody from the crowd, it flies over. In my memory, it broke out one of the policemen's headlights. Maybe it just hit the front of the car. In my, oh. in my head, it hit the, the headlight. And all of us, that was when it hit the fan, right? The cops started yelling. They were on their thing, you know, okay, everybody, blah, blah, blah. And so a hundred people, people just scrambled running to different cars. And I ran to my car and I want to say the lead singer and maybe it was, uh, I don't remember who it was, but a couple of members of Cottonmouth got in my car and was like drive. And I was like, Yep. And so cars are just driving each way on the field. So we go around where the police, they're yelling at everybody to stop. They can't stop 50 cars, you know. Everybody goes up the dirt road, back. We all get on the interstate. Everybody's like, be cool, man. Be cool, you know, and drove back to Spokane. It was like one in the morning or something when we got back. I remember um, I took one of the guys home and I dropped one of the guys off at Waffle House. And then came home. That's my my memory of that. Uh, but I, I was like, like that whole thing almost seems like a uh, out of body experience. You know what I mean? Like it seems like a scene from a movie. It's because you were really drunk. It's also very possible. Um, yeah, I had no part of that. You did not go to that deal. I don't remember why. I don't remember where you were. Um, maybe I, think I was off representing the United States government. Somewhere. <laughs> So, um, so around the same time, and I'm working on this episode uh, or this uh, issue of Intune, and everything had just kept growing. I mean, we kept getting stuff from bands. We kept. I had people contacting me saying that this uh, uh, one woman contacted me and said she wanted to be the photographer. And she would go to shows and take pictures and give me pictures. And I was like, okay. You know, I mean, people were, were wanting to be a part of what I was doing, you know. And um, I got contacted by a guy whose name was, I believe it was Brad, I think. And he said, I'm the lead singer of a band named Snot. Now, let me stop right there and just say there is a famous signed band called Snot that was out in the 90s. This is not that band. That was S-N-O-T, like Snot. This was S-N-A-U-T, Snot. And so this guy says, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of me. I'm a lead singer of a band named Snot. And um, we used to be a band. We've taken off a few years. But uh, we're recording a new album. And I, I want to be in your magazine. And I was like, okay. And that name didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Right? So I called a couple of people. I called guys from Cottonmouth. I called uh, Matt, you know, from Oil Filter. And I was like, have you ever heard of a band called Snot? Snot was legendary. Around Spokane, one of uh, 
the most famous stories that I heard from Snot or about Snot was that they had somehow signed up to be in a, a uh, either a Halloween or I believe it was a Christmas parade. And they had made a float or something and were throwing dog food at children. Uh, they were um, infamous for being wild and crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the. Um, <laughs> when I met the guy, like a lot of these guys, and this this goes back to your story about um, Boba Fett Youth. This guy was an apartment manager. He was very professional. He came to our house. He was like, here's a picture of us live. Here's what I want to run in your magazine. The things that were written on it were so offensive. I was like, I can't run that. Like, my parents are going to see this magazine. I can't repeat them. I don't. People listen to this show in front of their kids, so I can't even tell you. If you email me, I'll tell you (laughs) what it said. Um, But, uh, oh, and they were in blackface. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, by the way, that's not the worst part of the picture. Okay. Uh, and so I'm calling all these people I know and I'm like, have you heard of Snot? They're like, Hey, if Snot wants to be in your magazine, you do it. Like they are the real deal, you know? Uh, and Snot was recording at the studio and they called me and said, Hey, come to the studio. And I went and I hung out with the band, you know, and I don't remember if you went, I don't think so down there or not. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, so this is, so the guy from snot and I remember at the time I said, uh, a full page ad should pay for the magazine. Yeah. Right. So at this point, a full page magazine was, I don't know, $400, let's say this guy wanted the whole insert of the magazine to be this giant picture of snot. He wanted mm-hmm. two pages, which would have been $800. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh yeah, you know, whatever you want to do. And then he said, uh, I don't have the money, but snot is playing the first show in five years and it's going to be at this club and we will have the money that night. I guarantee you. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably would have done it for free. I mean, put them in the magazine, but $800 sounded nice too. Right. So I agreed. Um, I went, did you go to the snot show? I did. Okay. Uh, I went to the show. Susan and I were sitting at a table. Uh, Matt, all the guys from Oil Filter, I think, were there. I know Matt was there. Cynthia was there. Um, All the musicians from Spokane were there. Mm -hmm. This was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to tell me about your your memories of the show. I don't remember a whole lot, but I'm just going to say we went to so many shows in the year that we lived there and they really do run together. A lot of them were at Ichabod's. There were only like two or three venues that we went to. Uh, They were all smallish, you know, and dark. So there's nothing that stood out other than I remember again, being completely uncomfortable because we're sitting with the people that you were like starstruck with and stuff. Sure. I remember drinking a very lot to get comfortable sitting with them. So, before the show began, the whole front of the stage was covered with, like, camouflage netting. So, you could see the band behind there, um, but there was a covering. Along the front of the stage were Folgers cans that were filled with explosives uh, in a very small club. Mm -hmm. And so, the other thing was, uh, the lead singer... Now, I had only seen the lead singer of Snot as 
Brad, the apartment manager who had come over to my apartment to give me the ad material. And I talked to him on the phone. And he was very professional. Mm-hmm. Um, he's wearing face war paint. He's wearing this giant outfit and he's wearing a metal cod piece. And he also has a metal grinder or sander that he is hitting the metal cod piece with and sparks are flying down. Yeah. Someone has now lit the Folgers cans and they begin exploding. Flames are going up and they lift this this camouflage netting and they play this show. Okay. Uh, I don't know how long this show was scheduled to go, but about five songs into it, the Spokane Fire Department shows up and they are going to close the show because it turns out you really shouldn't set off homemade explosives in a small club. In that building that should have been condemned 50 years ago. Right. It's like something from an old West town. It was literally made of asbestos. <laughs> the yeah. whole place. Yeah. And um, they were coming in to shut down the show. And we had seen the manager guy on the side that was holding all the door money. And he knew what the deal was. And so as we as people are standing up and stuff, I went over to that guy and was like, Hey, they told me they were going to pay me for this ad out of the door money. And the guy was like, yep. And he paid me the money. Um, I honestly don't remember. I mean, in retrospect, that seems like a lot of money for them to have made that night. And part of me says they couldn't have paid me all the money. But the other part of me, I don't remember not, I don't remember them owing me money. Yeah. You'd which be is, mad about $800. Yes. Yeah. So I do remember they paid me money. And I think they paid me the whole amount. I mean, I think that guy paid me the whole amount. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to say this. Uh, I remember one time Oil Filter playing uh, a show. And they played with three bands. And uh, I asked them, because I was friends with them, I asked them how much they were going to make uh, off that. And I think, so it was sold out. And Ichabod's would sell out at 100 people. And so they told me that the door was $3. So it was 100 people times three, which was $300. Of that $300, it got split evenly. Well, uh, immediately half went to the club. So 150 went to the club. Mm-hmm. 150 went to the bands. The three bands split the money even. So now you're at $50 a band. Oil Filter had five members and they told me that everything that they made from their shows half went into you know their savings, and they split the other half. So they got fifty dollars, and then half of that twenty five went into savings. So they split twenty five dollars five ways. Yeah, and then that's why support your local artist, buy the merch. Buying one CD was more money. Buy the merch than they had made. And I remember being so like I don't know why I was so surprised. When we realized that it was Cynthia's mom that was working the merch table, and that's the way a lot of bands are until they get mm-hmm. big, big. Yeah. 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 It's uh, um, homegrown, you know? Yeah. So that same month, the same month that uh, Snot, that it was in the magazine, the same month that all this stuff was going on, Oil Filter was also doing their CD release party. And that was a big part of, of that that issue of the magazine. So I had been hanging out in the studio with Oil Filter. Um 
they had recorded their, this was their, their whole, their first album. I mean, the full, you know, the other ones were cassettes and this was going to be a CD. It was a big deal. They were having a CD release party and it was sponsored by Intune magazine. So I had done advertising. I did the, um, all the CD layout. I mean, all the art, you know, the, the layout and design of the CD. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had pushed it in the magazine. I made flyers. I feel like you did some stickers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All, all this stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, so, and they had the CD release party. And I mean, I, for me, that was really the highlight of everything I did with Intune magazine was the was Oil Filter CD release party. Because yeah. uh, it was like, I now I had helped them. You know what I mean? Like, they helped me in the beginning. They gave me credibility uh, yeah. in the first issue. At this point, I was helping them. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, now, of course, there were two magazines all this time, right? There was Backstage Pass, that other magazine, and then there was my magazine. All of a sudden, there was rumors of a new third magazine coming into town called Pavement. And uh, the rumor was that the pavement was co-owned. It was. It had something to do with the local newspaper. So it was. So whoever was doing it had money behind them. Mm-hmm. I had no money, and Backstage Pass had less than no money. Um, and so I got an email from the editors of the pavement, and they said we are interested in buying your magazine. And I didn't really know what that meant. Like, what are you buying? Like, what do I have to sell? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not selling in my computer. You're not a paid staff member. I'm not. Right. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, I don't have a subscription uh, list. I don't have a mail list. Maybe they figured this out. And I sent them back a thing and I said, well, what exactly do you want to buy and how much do you want to buy it for? You know? And I never got a response. And the next month, there was a new paper in town. The pavement. And it was right where all of our other papers were going to go. And I remember opening it up. It was very professional looking. The front was color. None of ours were color. We didn't have color oh, magazines. Oh, yeah. That's money. Right. The front page was color. And on the opening page, you know where you have like the list of like who's your editor and your staff? I mean, it had 20 people. Mm-hmm. We had two people. Me and you. And I, that's not true. We had more than two people because we made up people. Yeah. Like, I would write a story and be like, oh, this was written by Denny O'Hara, which was my dad, you know, or whatever, just to try to make it look like we had a bigger staff than we really had, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Not only uh, did they have uh, these, you know, this big staff, but at the top of their little masthead, they had a little picture of a, you know, a big, heavy concrete block, and it said pavement, and underneath that, it was smashing two magazines. And one of them said Backstage Pass, and one said Intune. So literally in their magazine, they had a little thing that said they were going to smash me. Um, and then they smashed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I had a circulation of 1,500 magazines. They started mailing these out. Uh, they were including them, I think, in a newspaper, maybe? I don't remember. Maybe but in the Spokesman Review, yeah. It was, yeah. I mean, they just littered the town with them, and I knew it was over. Yep. I knew it was over, uh, and, you know, I was, 
we had called some of the people that had been advertising with us and they were like, nope, we're, we've got, you know, um, deals with them now. And I was like, it's, that's it. Yeah. Yep. And so, uh, it was kind of a unceremonious ending to Intune. I mean, do you remember anything about the end? No, it was literally like, we can't sell ads and people quit calling. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing was, is that the pavement was not, um, didn't cater to that music. They were more like, um, you know, oh, there's a beer pub. You know what I mean? Like that kind of, uh, or what's popular or, I mean, when, when we went to that very first, uh, talent show and kid Robin won and we all rolled our eyes, you know, they were kid Robin people. And we were oil filter people. They were people who realized that you had stepped into a market of ad selling and they were willing to bring in people who could write the entertainment part because you had stepped in their ad selling zone. Yes. You know? Yeah. And there was nothing about the content. Nope. Nope. They didn't yeah. care about the bands. They didn't care about the scene. They didn't care about the music. Yeah. They didn't care about any of it. They just wanted to make money. They wanted their piece. And I'm sure they made money. Um, and I don't remember how long they were around or whatever, but yeah, it dried up for us like overnight. Yep. And um, so it wasn't anything that we did. Um, you know, there's one story that I that I would throw in is uh, I mentioned that Joe Airbar, I think is how you say his name, Airbar, um, was the writer for the Spokesman uh, Review. Mm-hmm. And do you remember he came to the house one time to interview me? You remember that? Oh yeah. And um, the spokesman review did he did a he was a he was their music guy, and of course he was from there, and he had deep roots in the music scene. You wanted him to be on your side, you know. And he came to the house and interviewed me about uh, the magazine, and and um, you know I was on his radar, and I remember reading the article. And it was fair, you know, and, but I, he, they, he kind of pitted us against backstage pass, mm-hmm. you know, and it made hard feelings where I didn't really have hard feelings. I'm sure they had hard feelings. And I just remember like feeling awkward the whole time. Like I didn't realize what I had done really at the yeah. time, you know, but, um, his article was like, you know, on the one side, You've got Rob O'Hara, who is a great writer and a background in journalism. And on the other side, you have these guys that are of the heart of Spokane and that have grown up in this music scene and all this. And I was like, wow, I didn't see it that way. Yeah, you're an outsider. Yeah. You know what? He was more than an article writer. He was, this is the conspiracy theory, he was the mole for the spokesman review, learning about the size of your operation <laughs> and how easy it would be to put Maybe. the on you. I don't know. I don't know. 100%. I don't know. Anyway. But, um, yeah, uh, the pavement. I mean, they. It's funny because they made a little cartoon about them crushing us, and then they crushed us. Yeah, uh, it's because they saw the operation at your tiny little computer desk in our apartment. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know. I never figured out what they wanted to buy from me, but um, yeah. they, they must have thought we had had more uh, more than we did. But uh, so, you know, I've talked about in the past about owning arcade games, right? And I bought and sold a bunch of arcade games, and I had arcade games and in the back backyard of my house. I had 30 arcade games. Um, but then finally when we moved, I sold my arcade games. And all of a sudden, I found out that I was um, – it was not as cool to be the guy who used to own arcade games, 
right? Like, if you tell people, I own 30 arcade games, that's one thing. If you tell people, I used to own 30 arcade games, it's not that impressive. You know, people don't care about what you used to do. And uh, a lot, I won't say it, not everybody, because I still talk to Oil Filter. I still talk to Cottonmouth or some of the guys, you know. And, um, uh, you know, there were people that I maintained friendships with. But being the guy that used to own a music magazine, the phone stopped ringing for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I do want to tell one one story that has nothing to do with Intune. I mean, it kind of does. But so you used to own a music magazine. We decided to move back to Oklahoma for reasons completely unrelated to any of this, right? And we're still music people. I mean, we both enjoy going to concerts. We like bands. We like all kinds of metal. And uh, there's this band called Life of Agony that Rob is in love with. You've loved their songs. You know every word of all their albums. They came to town uh, to do a show. I think it was at the Diamond Ballroom, which is a little bit outside of town. And somehow, I don't know how we made contact with them. If you did it, if you emailed them or what. Well, so to to backtrack just a little bit, um, when we were running this magazine, when we were running um, Intune Magazine, the best way to get news articles and CD reviews and stuff like that into people's hands was to physically print magazines, carry them around in the back of your car and drop them off uh, and, and pay money to have, you know, dead wood basically. Right. But that was in 1996. Um, and in 2000, I mean, by the time we moved back, I mean, when we started Intune Magazine in '96, in, uh, but uh, I mean, when I started it, no, I didn't. Ha- I mean, nobody went to the website. Nobody emailed mm-hmm. me. Nobody. It was a that wasn't a thing. You know, I mean, people were getting on AOL and stuff like that, but it wasn't you know like it is now. Where I mean, the first thing you do with a business is get online. Yeah, go right? Google it. Yeah, and yeah. so um, uh, which is funny you mentioned that because when I uh, Google. Intune magazine. There are a million magazines now over the years that have been called Intune magazine, and there is a Intune magazine from Spokane that is not my magazine. We should have trademarked that. Yes, and so, um, so by the time I got back, and within um, you know a couple of years, uh, I mean around around Y two K, like around that time, uh, that wasn't the business model anymore. The business yeah. model wasn't to make a magazine and drive around town and drop them off. The The business model was, you know, set up a website and make it look professional and get people, you know, that was the way, that was the future of journalism, you know? And so uh, that's what I moved to. I didn't want to do uh, magazine stuff. I mean, I loved it. But it just wasn't wasn't there anymore, you know, and and I didn't have the time for that hustle for the ads and stuff, you know. Um, but writing web articles and stuff was just as good, you know. And so uh, I think something I had contacted Roadrunner Records or something I just don't remember. But but we did find out that um, Life of Agony was coming to Oklahoma City and emailed them and said, "Could I interview the band?" And they said, "Yeah." 
Yeah. And you lost your mind with excitement. And so we went to see the show. We probably would have gone to that show anyway. And oh, 100%. Yeah, right. We've seen him a couple times, a few times, a couple for me, more than that for you probably. But anyway, so the way I remember it is um, we were to see the whole show and then go interview afterwards. No, nope, we went before um, because um, the lead singer was doing something else. After? Uh, no, uh, he wasn't there. At the interview, it was only the uh, guitar player and the bass player. Yeah. Uh, and the drummer was sitting on the bus, but did not come back to be interviewed. Right. Um, but the lead singer was like psyching himself up for the show mm-hmm. because if you remember after the interview, they gave me the press pass and said I could take pictures during the first three songs. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, they, so the, the setup was they told me that, um, before the show, they would be sitting on the bus, and I needed to go there and show my ID, and they would let us on the bus to interview them. Yeah, and I think this in all this time, I mean, obviously, a lot of the bands we we worked with and stuff like that, um, they were moving up, they were in different levels, you know, from from not having transportation to. This is the first time that you worked with somebody who invited you on their tour bus. So, yeah. so Tracy Guns, they, you weren't on the bus, you were in the club. Um, so this was a big deal anyway, to just see like the inside of a tour bus, you know. Um, so we got there, um, we went all the way back to the back of the tour bus. And I honestly can't believe that they let me on with you. For some reason they did. Um, and we sit down and it's time to start the interview. And Rob cannot talk. He is like a little child and I can, his feet, he has this, this gesture, this mannerism that he does when he's super excited, like a little kid where he puts his fingers up to his mouth and sort of, um, almost like fake bites his nails or whatever, because he's so giddy with excitement. And he was doing that on the bus. And I was like, I'm going to have to do this interview, which again, I, we talked about earlier. I could talk to anybody anytime and it just doesn't phase me at all. So Rob sat there while we talked to these band members and was just beaming the whole time while I'm just pulling interview questions out of my butt, really. So let me paint this scene a little bit. (laughs) Um, We had gone to a Halloween party years earlier, and we were at this Halloween party at a friend's house, and Headbangers Ball was on. And they came on and they said, hey, here's this brand new video from a brand new band called Life of Agony, and their first song was called Through and Through. This is a video debut or whatever. And when they started playing that song, I made everybody in the room shut up. I was like, what is this? I loved it. And when the CD came out, I got their first CD. Um, I'm sure the second CD was out. Uh, I had the second CD. And then their band uh, got dropped off of their record label or something, and they put money together to go on a tour by themselves, to self-fund a tour. So they were looking for publicity, right? So I kind of hit them at the, at the right time, right? Yeah. So to me, this was a band that, I mean, this was pre, um, not pre-MP3s, but pre-MP3 player in my car. Like I had a six-disc changer. Their two CDs were always in two of the six slots. I yeah. was always listening to these albums. And 
my recollection of this interview was uh, if you've ever seen the Saturday Night Live skit where Chris Farley interviews people and he's like, <laughs> like he was interviewing Paul McCartney and he goes, uh, you remember when you were in the Beatles? That was awesome. <laughs> That's what I felt like. I mean, I just remember going like, you guys do that. One song, <laughs> like I couldn't even talk. Couldn't I couldn't get think. words out, and and really, I if you hadn't, if I hadn't been on that tour bus, they would have thought that there was something wrong with you, right? It just was. It's one of my funniest memories of all of the the band things, and you know, it's like it brought it all back home. Like everything went full circle back to the very beginning when you just all you wanted was to be part of that that cool kids crew or whatever. And here we are all at the very back at the end where you're just so freaking starstruck. It was crazy. You know what I learned? And I don't know why I forgot this uh, because, you know, I did interview lots of other bands, probably not other bands that I loved mm-hmm. uh, or not, not that I, I wouldn't say that I loved because they're bands that I like now, but bands that I hadn't looked up to. Like, um, you know, I, I talked to um, Tony Moshi, Yep. Those guys at the band, uh, uh, Tony and Meg. I talked to um, RPG, and I talked to all these different bands that were super cool, right? But what I forgot in that moment, and it was the lesson that I learned in Oil Filter the entire time, not Oil Filter, sorry, it was in, in tune, was that the there is a symbiotic relationship between the writer and between the artists. Yeah. And that was the whole thing. Like every time, uh, and I don't know that even the bands necessarily knew it in those words or understood it, but the thing was with my words, I could help those bands. And then those bands were helping me, mm-hmm. you know, getting me free stuff and getting me into shows. And so, I mean, on a more simplistic term, you could be like, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, you know, that sort of thing. Or to say that, um, you know, I mean, they are getting press by being nice to you. You, on the other hand, have to do your job of being, you know, a journalist, but also you reap whatever those, if it's important to you, which it was to me, uh, of getting to hear free music, getting to go to shows, being able to literally, I felt like I was the sixth member of a lot of these bands when yeah. you would walk into uh, Ichabod's and the sound guy would be there and you'd be like, Hey Chuck. And he'd go, Hey, you know, and, and you just kind of do this thing because you're like, I'm obviously not paying to walk in your club. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. like you, they know that you're there for business. I mean, I think about backstage experiences that we've paid for. I mean, you pay to go stand with, like we paid to go, stand with everybody but Axl Rose at Guns N' Roses, right? So people would pay good money to go sit on a tour bus just to see the tour bus, right? you know, and to have a conversation with people. So, and I think a lot of people too, you know, these are young people in a lot of cases, right? They're hustling. They've been away from home for a long time. They may be on a tour bus that they didn't pay for that, you know, they may be eating ramen noodles. They may be making five bucks a night. You know, so that we glorify them because they were super crazy, talented people. But at that age, whenever we were we were working with all these people, we didn't realize like we really did glorify them because they had this crazy talent and because they were on stage. Right. But this is the thing. This is what I forgot in that moment was there really was no difference between 
a crap band in somebody's basement wanting to be in your crap magazine, <laughs> you know, versus you you writing for a website and a band, it's the same thing. No matter how big the band is and no matter whether you're popular or not popular, it's the same relationship. It's always about what can you do for them? What can they do for you? I mean, I you know, it, it sounds uh, uh, funny to say that you're exchanging words for whatever, you know what I mean? But, uh, I mean, on that Life of Agony, there was like a huge pit, a huge crowd, and then there was a metal barrier, and then there were security guards, and then there was a five-foot area where I stood by myself taking pictures and having the guys uh you know Joey Z on guitar come down right in front of me you know and, and hit his guitar and then look at me and be like hey did you get that <laughs> you know that exactly. sort of thing yeah uh, because that's what you're doing you're doing something for them uh and you get that experience you know i have the uh life of agony uh double or double or triple dvd live uh and inside there i have you know my sign press pass from that night, yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah. so that's that's what I got out of it. You were a tiny little part of the machine. And, you know, to use words from Alice Cooper, it was a symbiotic function. <laughs> well, do you have any other final memories of uh, Intune Magazine? Was it fun? Was it not fun? Was it... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I like again, what I learned from it was that you want artists and artsy people in your life. They may be different. They may be on drugs. They may smell, you know, whatever, whatever. But you want people who are the spice of life in your life. It makes you a more interesting person. We have great stories to tell from it. So many things that we could talk about from all of this. I mean, there's way more that goes on for years and years past all of this, you know. And I definitely think it's made us, you know, more well-rounded people. And uh, I would do it again. I would say I would do that again for sure. Yeah. I think my takeaway, uh, obviously all of that, I agree with all that. Um. I think if I if I learned a life lesson from it is that you can enjoy the spice of life without jumping into the spice jar. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. You can see these bands and you can go enjoy it and you can be friends with them, but you don't have to live that lifestyle. I don't have to color my hair. I don't have to do those things. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. I don't have to do cocaine in a bathroom. No. <laughs> and I, could, I, if I went today, I would still dress the way I want to, you know, not because, I mean, back then I didn't know any better. Like, how could I be cool? But now I'd be like, Hey, I am who I am. I'm pretty conservative, whatever. I like good music, you know, but I wouldn't feel like I had to be different or that I didn't. No, because I think being cool then, like we saw people that were cool and we were like to be cool we need to be like them. But what was cool about them is that they were being themselves. And so yeah. really, if we were just ourselves, then we would be cool. Just, yeah, more confidence. I would be cool. In, in, well, I wouldn't do the hair thing again. Um, <laughs> it would just fall out again. Yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> All right. That's it for me. All righty. Well, thank you uh, for this being fun. on the podcast. Uh, this is... Uh, Definitely the longest show I've ever done, but uh, yeah, that's what happens. Maybe so. we will uh, start another magazine. You want to start another magazine? Uh, I'm pretty busy right now, 
but I would be happy to interview people. I still like doing that. You, I mean, we could talk about that. Like when we go to garage sales, I interview everyone. Will you sell ads? No. Well then, no. well then you're fired. I'd be happy to write you a check for $300. <laughs> you're, you're fired. Not sell ads. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a long episode. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, my wife and I had a good time recording it. Uh, we we laughed a lot. Uh, hopefully the uh, audio quality is up to par with the rest of the episode. We had to share one microphone, and uh, but uh, the old Blue Yeti in stereo mode, uh, hopefully it uh, did okay. Uh, here we are at the end. I just uh, always would like to say if you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook over at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Commodore, or you can always leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. Thanks again to all my Patreon supporters. You guys are the ones that keep everything going here in the background. And again, if uh, you don't want to sign up on Patreon or do anything like that, you can always help out the show by sharing links on social media or leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the show and extra special thanks to my wife, Susan, for coming on the show. And don't forget next week is Halloween. So I hope you have a very safe holiday and I will talk to you next week. Thank you guys. And I'll talk to you soon. If I do something, if I go beep, beep, beep like that, that means that I'm going to do an edit spot. That's how I can find them later. Oh, okay. Also, don't do what I just did and sip water right in front of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll just have to edit it out. My mic sounds nice. Check seven.